<sighs> Do I have any emails I need to answer before the show starts? Let's see. A memo from the board. I'll ignore that since they're basically irrelevant now. And some spam from Solstice Technologies asking me to invest in them. I'll delete that on principle. A press release from Mr. Gold about Nessie's brasserie. Oh, good Godzilla. WHG3's opening that pub despite the stunt eat old April 1st. He must still have clout with the board. Oh, boy. Yeah, what's this? A message from Gary about what to do about Jess? Oy vey. <sighs> okay. All right. Let's check Jimmy's secure server now. Can't have Winter or the board spying on us. Hold on. Here's an email from Nick Totopoulos. Hmm. It's dated before Heat's run-in with Crazy Bernice. It says, Nate, Ozaki talked to me and the rest of Heat about the shady dealings on the island. Given what's happened with the Blob and the other creatures the last few months, I agree with Ozaki that Winter is up to something on the beta site. Heat will patrol around that island later this morning. I'll let you know if we find anything, signed Nick. Oh boy, did they find something, all right. Hmm. And here's one from yesterday. Nate, La Carcania attacking me and my team wasn't an accident. Okay. I'll explain later. Contact me soon. Signed, Nick. Man, I need to check this more often. Check what more often, Mr. Marchand? Uh, 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 just my email is all. Ah, always starting your day by logging into the company-provided email account, Mr. Marchand. Good man. Can't miss any of those important memos and marching... <laughs> marching Marchand. <laughs> Oh, look at you. I made the funny. Sure did. But as I was saying, Mr. Winter and the board send emails daily to all employees with their marching orders. My favorite is Mr. Winter's weekly updates and pep talks titled, It's a Winterful Life. Clever, if I do say so myself. Oh, jeez. The boss needs to leave the puns to me. That's actually what leads me to why I'm here, Mr. Marchand. Remember how I said Mr. Winter had big plans for you and K-I-J-U? <laughs> Looks like I'm a poet and didn't even know it. What do you think about that, Mr. Marchand? Hashtag dad joke. <clears throat> well, as of this morning, Mr. Winter has decided to make you, Nate, the island's media master. What do you say about that? The what? Media master. Well, it's essentially just a fancy name for head of media. We have one of those? Damn straight, and you're it. So, this is a promotion? You bet your life. Well, metaphorically speaking, of course. Well, this is a surprise, especially considering I don't think we had one of those before. Oh, now it shouldn't be, Mr. Marchand. You've been working harder than a cowboy on a cattle run to produce your fine program and curate the island's film library with the greatest, most wonderful, most fantastic kaiju films of all time. Ah, okay. I thought you were pouring it on a little thicker, but yeah, I like to keep doing that, honestly. I assure you, we will never want you to end your show, Mr. Marchand. 
it's quite popular with the tourists. And if there's anything that we know, a happy tourist is a surefire moneymaker. What about Jimmy? Oh, don't you worry about old Jimbro. Ms. Kawhi is extending a different offer to him today. And what's that? Uh, let's just say Mr. Winter has come into possession of several relics important to the history of Kaiju. And those things are going to be of great interest to Mr. Crane. So you're giving him more toys for his garage? Yes and no. They're museum pieces, artifacts, if you will. We want him to personally inspect them. I see. Well, I hope you understand. This is a lot for me to consider, and I'm still a bit busy, of course. So I'll let you know by the end of the month. Is that okay? Perfectly fine. Take as much time as you need, Mr. Marchand, but I reckon you ain't gonna want to pass this up. Noted. Good to see you're still enjoying those fine cocoa beans we gave you a while back. Yeah, they are delicious. Well, pardon the pun, but that's just a taste of what Mr. Winter has in store for you. Well, if he ever gets off the dang beta site, tell him this promotion is just one of a few things I want to talk to him about. I guarantee you, Mr. Machan, if you take that offer, you will always have Mr. Winter's ear. You're making this deal sweeter than the cocoa. Nate, can I call you Nate? Did I ever tell you how I wanted to be a country music star? Because wheelin' and dealin' and kiss-stealin' is my middle name. Huh, maybe. Anyway, I have to head to the studio. Name of Noise is joining us again today. Well, good luck, Mr. Marchand. <laughs> You're gonna need it. Trust Winter or his goons. But maybe I can use this to figure out what he's up to. Live from the KIGU studios in beautiful Ogasawara, this is the Monster Island Film Vault, episode 67. Little Shop of Horrors 1986 featuring Damon Noise. Hello, Kaiju lovers, and welcome to the Monster Island Film Vault, a podcast seeking entertainment and enlightenment through Tokusatsu. I am your host, the Monster Island Film Curator, Nate Marchand. Yes, hello to you as well, Jimmy. Yeah, yeah, Jimmy, I know, I know. You know alien plants. You, know, you want to talk to us about the alien plants that you've run into, but you know what? I have someone better in mind to talk about that. No offense, Jimmy. And that is none other. Coming back, having not left the island apparently, is mailman by day, actor by night, the puppet master himself, Damon Noise. Welcome to your night of terror. <laughs> <laughs> That's and comedy. Don't forget comedy. Uh, comedy? Uh, or have you been hanging out at uh, Dr. Dorov's basement or something? I don't... Absolutely not. I haven't, okay. I, have, I haven't seen anything. I, have, I, even lo- I went to the beta site. 
Okay. And, uh, I didn't know I, they offered tours there. How did you get there? They don't. I, oh, Jimmy, it was you. <laughs> you sure you want to want, admit that on out. the air? I didn't want to out Jimmy, but. Well, he's outing yeah. himself. You know what, Jimmy? You might want to just, just keep it down. Just keep it down. <laughs> all right. All right. Yeah, we, yeah, I don't need you to get arrested. All right. All right. Mm. Well, he let me use one of those skiffs that, uh, that pilot over between the islands and ah. you know, it was so you know they had the 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 transponder on it so that it'll allow you into the the, the boat dock so ah i see i see so after all the excitement <laughs> during yeah. or right after i should say the previous broadcast on the giant claw <laughs> yeah well i want i i went over there specifically because i wanted to see you know where they beached themselves and you know i was very curious i maybe get a souvenir like a feather maybe i don't know didn't uh-huh. find anything kaiju didn't tooth find... or something yeah yeah yeah, yeah. or a but, bit but of I... kaiju tooth because but they're you know, kind of huge I... <laughs> <laughs> i'd heard i'd heard that uh the, you know obviously the weirder things are over there on the beta site yes and i was curious about audrey too or tui tui yes as he's as he's called and since he does apparently identify as male yes because well, I, I i assume it's like a, a an it because it's a plant it's not a yes oh but it's sentient so it's, since yeah, uh, yeah, Audrey's weird, very, very, very weird. Audrey's weird. But, Although the name was given him, true. So you know, true. But, you know, we haven't quite started the discussion yet. But anyway, you went looking anyway, for Audrey. I went looking Audrey for Audrey too. And I, Audrey and I too. found Tui. Oh, how big was he? Quite, quite large, actually. Oh, uh, was it the that you said you you found kaiju Audrey? I found kaiju Audrey. Oh and, no! Uh, but interestingly enough, they had a some kind of spray system that was keeping like a hormone an anti-hormone oh. spray whatever, keeping it from budding oh um, i bet that was something developed by dr dorif wouldn't surprise me all, all i know and and he had a like uh his enclosure had a mute feature so ah. that if he started using his persuasive abilities that they could just ah. it would immediately kick in and ah. so he was he was very uh, conscious they, uh, they that. silenced that silver tongue absolutely but it was it was nice seeing him in person and being able to at least hold a somewhat civil conversation until he started asking me what I actually wanted. Oh, <laughs> that's when you that's when you run the other way. I, well, what I'm a little bit scared of, I gotta, I, I have to be honest with you, is God help us. And I, I, I'm putting this out there. So Winter, the board, Mister Gold, all of you, just so you know, I'm a little scared of the idea of Audrey Two being moved to the main site. And getting anywhere close to Biolante. Now Just that saying. hybrid would be interesting. Yeah, except I don't think we need little like Biolante Audrey children running around. Uh, now we know yeah. that Biolante is mm. is mostly bene- beneficent towards humanity, mm-hmm. having a human soul DNA yes. grafted onto there. Yes, might might the the hybrids might be more conducive to keeping us alive instead of as a food source possibly i don't know and mingling g cells with audrey uh, space cells yeah it might calm it down a little bit who knows or it might make it angrier who knows Uh Uh, yeah that's true i mean you never know yeah you never know when you're making hybrids but you know i'm sure dr dorif would have something to say about that are you kidding me Oh my gosh! Speak of the devil. You know, oh. We say his name enough because he, li- you know, I, I guess he listens. So he wants <sighs> to go. come in and what is it, Jimmy? 
All right, Damon, he wants to be on the show. My apologies. I, Just, no, that's okay. I know this is the first time you've met him. He's a little bit weird, but... We're, we're talking about plants. It makes perfect yeah. sense that you would want, yeah, you would want yeah, to Yeah, because he's it. the resident kaiju horticologist now. It's not just the Matongo anymore for him. So let's see what he has to say. Hello, Nathan. Uh, hello, Dr. Dorif. Or should I call you Dante now? Well, as long as you don't call me late for my mushroomy dinner, I'll respond to anything you choose to call me and I do mean anything. <laughs> well, oh, no, well, that's, not, that's not creepy at all, no. Yeah, yeah, well, uh, yeah, this is your first time talking to him, isn't it, Damon? Yeah, Have you ever yeah. met him before? No, no, uh, hello, uh, Dr. Dorof. Hello there, Nate's friend. I must admit I don't exactly know who you are, although I must say your voice does sound somewhat familiar. Well, if you had listened to the podcast for any length of time, I've shown up a couple of times, I guess. Oh, sir. Sir, I've listened to every episode multiple times. Sometimes while I'm sleeping. Sometimes while I'm showering. Sometimes while I'm doing both at the same time. <laughs> Sleeps in his tub. Why am I not surprised? Anyway, <laughs> did you... Have something to contribute to our conversation today, because that's what Jimmy told me. Uh, you're calling in because we're talking about Little Shop of Horrors. Oh yes, yes, yes. I, I was listening to the to the live show whilst clipping my toenails. They did need it, you know. And well, I figured since it was a plant-based monster, it well, it'd be kind of weird to have an episode of your show about a plant monster and not have me piping in. It is. After all, a most beloved tradition. Yes, yes. Beloved, uh, yes. Do you, uh, do you have you done any work with Audrey too? Tui, oh, uh, yes. whichever one. She's been on the he she. We're not sure yet. Uh, is on the beta site, and I'm hearing rumors that the winter and the board are planning on moving him to the main site. Winter. Who is who is this a is this a person? Are you, or are you talking about a season? The Cameron Winter. He's the new boss. Cameron Winter. I've never heard the name before. Anyway, t uh, that's not important. Tell us about the work you've done with Audrey too. Well, you see, many many years ago there was an outbreak. As you know, once you snip snip the buds off of those Audrey plants, they procreate like planty type rabbits don't they <laughs> uh, yes <laughs> and 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 they spread across the world and so naturally i i took interest well maybe maybe a bit of interest and also a bit of sympathy you see people were rounding them up and destroying them before they could grow to giant size it was murder mr march and murder they were killing them they were burning them. Could you imagine something, something so beautiful, something so majestic, so deeply destructive, killed? Could you imagine? Why would they do that? Uh, Preemptive saving the species, the human race. I mean, I, I, under I understand they're an intelligent plant, but, you know, they want to eat us. And going to pretend like I didn't hear that, Mr. Noise. Uh, 
Mm. Going to pretend like I didn't hear that. Anyway, okay. talking just to you now, Mr. Marchand, just to <laughs> oh, you. Okay, okay. Yeah, because I, I, I guess I, we're friends now. It's, uh, now, I thought we were friends all along. What does this yeah, mean for us? I, uh, yeah, but, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Sure, oh, Donnie. I, sure, Donnie. Yeah. Oh, mm-hmm. Donnie, I, I quite like that. <clears throat> well, anyway, I... I'm blushing a bit. I'm sorry. Let me just recompose myself. <clears throat> well, uh, anyway, where was I? I was talking about rounding up some of the surviving plants. You see, I've been raising them on one of the beta sites, keeping them away from people because, well, they do have a nasty tendency to rip them apart and consume their blood. <laughs> but, 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 I've been keeping them safe and studying them, keeping them at a manageable size. We have so much fun, fun together. We, we even sing together sometimes. That mean green mother song is quite the earworm. You must agree. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, 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 it is. I mean, it was nominated for an Oscar, so... I take it you have more children, not just the Matongo? Oh, oh! I wouldn't quite put them on the same level as my dearly beloved mushroom children, but, but, but maybe in more of the second cousin twice removed territory. But don't tell uh, them that they're so you're, sensitive. So you're their uncle? Oh, yes, I'm Uncle Dante to them. <laughs> Uncle Dante, it has a it has a delightful ring to it, don't you think? <laughs> uh, yeah, sure, 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 sure. And uh, uh, with that, I think uh, Damon, uh, we'll uh, we'll move on. Thank you for no, stopping by, Donnie. Enjoy. We're gonna finish talking about the movie. I'm sure you'll have a good time. Oh, you know me. I'll be listening. I'm not at the beta site right now. I'm actually with my wonderful children underground and. As you know, we're always listening, always down here, always waiting. (laughs) Good luck with the rest of your broadcast. And that's enough from you. Okay. Wow. That's uh, an interesting uh, employee you got there. Yeah. Yeah. I assure you, he's he's weird, but he's harmless. As far as I know, he hasn't killed anybody. (laughs) <laughs> I don't think he would. Yeah. He's just weird. Yeah. Okay. He's he's just weird. We, speak, we, weird is okay. Yeah, weird is okay. Weird is okay. But speaking of weird, <laughs> we've been hinting at it. By the way, I'm glad that you 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 got back from the beta site safely. Oh yes. You oh, know, well, there's so but, many weird kaiju over there. Indeed. Indeed. Did Indeed, you find a souvenir? Is. Did you find that souvenir you were looking for? I forgot to ask. Unfortunately, no. And I seem to have developed a little bit of indigestion from the residual effects of the antimatter shield that was used by Bernice. Ah, uh, it may be a little bit of radiation poisoning. I don't know. Yeah, I, it I, sounds I, like your I'm your allergies myself. are acting up a little bit there, which is a little <laughs> yeah. unfortunate considering that we are covering our first ever musical on the show today. Uh, this is your Patreon sponsored episode. We are talking indeed. about Little Shop of Horrors from 1986. It's funny how this came about because I was doing a live stream and I just said like, man, I really want to talk about this movie in Amerikaiju, but I have to make cuts. I got to make decisions. It was a hard decision to cut it. And you're just like, you know what? (laughs) I'm going to do it. (laughs) I'm going to do it. (laughs) 
So here you go, Marchand. I'm sponsoring it. You get it. Uh, you get it on the schedule this year. Anyway, I'm like, yes, yes. Okay, Mister Moneybags is coming in. Gonna throw you a bone, <laughs> a big old bone. Yes, yes, because. I'm a big fan of this movie, and I, I, I basically said, like, I don't need an excuse to talk about this, but I want an excuse to talk about this. So, excuse has been Everybody given. <laughs> and, you know, it is one of the greatest, trans, you know, just adaptations from stage to movie. I, As a stage actor myself and just starting to get into movies, it's incredibly difficult to make that transition when a stage play is so successful and then make it into a movie where it is just as successful. I mean, granted, this wasn't initially successful. Mm-hmm. But it was considered an underperformer. Under, yeah, and considering how much they you know, spent on it and the fact that they had to go mm-hmm. back and do reshoots for mm-hmm. the ending. Mm-hmm. I, uh, the later. numbers I was seeing, although there's some disagreement over how much it actually cost, most of the estimates landed around $25 million to make. Yes, yeah. And it made yeah. about $39 million at the box office. Yeah, not not a not a winner, unfortunately. No, it was considered an underperformer, but then it found its audience, like a lot of movies do. It found its audience in home media. You put stuff out on video, you put it at the blockbuster, and, or the little mom and pop ones, and that box art gets you. Mm-hmm. And you just said, "What the hell is this?" And you don't know going in. Oh, it's a musical about a man-eating plant, and it's funny, and the music is catchy. <laughs> yes. Yeah, especially if you hadn't seen the... Actually, I think for a lot of people, this was their introduction to the idea that this weirdo little Roger Corman two-day wonder film got made into a musical. Yeah, well, nobody had heard about it because the Roger Corman thing kind of hit and disappeared, which is what it was supposed to do. Hits, makes money, and goes away. And Howard Ashman and, and Alan Menken just... I don't know how they looked at that movie and said, oh, we can make some... Stage productions out of this. How? How? How did you look at that original movie and say that? Now, well, let's talk about that a little bit. But first, Damon. Yes. Give us a plot rundown on this movie for those unfortunate people who have not seen it yet. All right. Let's see if I can do this in one take. All right, Jimmy. (laughs) This is a musical, so cue the music. Meek flower shop assistant Seymour pines for co-worker Audrey. During a total eclipse of the sun, he discovers an unusual plant he names Audrey II in honor of her, which feeds only on human flesh and blood. The growing plant attracts a great deal of business to Mushnik's flower shop, which was previously struggling. After Seymour feeds Audrey's boyfriend, Oren Scurbello, DDS, to the plant, after his accidental death, he must come up with more bodies for the increasingly bloodthirsty plants. Yes, that's a musical. The feel-good musical of the year. Well, the theatrical version is the feel-good movie of the year. <laughs> when it premiered in 1982, it off, off-Broadway. It wasn't just off-Broadway. It was two steps off. Uh, yeah, actually, um, yeah. That's what it actually says in the credits. It says, yeah, based on off, the off-off-Broadway, because apparently that's a thing. I yeah. I have friends in the theater world. I know a bit about the theater world, but apparently there are actually different levels. There's yeah. Broadway, off-Broadway, and off-off-Broadway. And the thing about that is a lot of your outer you know, experimental plays start on off-off-Broadway. Depending on the buzz, 
they get pushed to off-Broadway. And if the buzz is really good, if they continue to sell out and it continues to get play and the critics love it, it will get brought onto Broadway, which is what happened with this particular play. And it did really well. Ellen Green, the Audrey of the movie, is the original Audrey from mm-hmm. the off-off-Broadway production. Mm-hmm. And her pipes cannot be reasoned with because yeah. <laughs> the, I've, they, I've got <laughs> notes on uh, on her uh, and her yes. singing but i do want to give a quick rundown <clears throat> so this particular version this film has a really interesting history because it's kind of several steps removed <laughs> from the source material mm. yeah because yes. <laughs> i found out that the because we've we mentioned it a little bit there was a roger corman film in 1960 Made in two days on recycled sets. Gotta love it. You know, and I'm not going to get too much into that version because that could be a whole episode unto itself. Indeed. But it was the first appearance, first major appearance, I guess, of Jack Nicholson, a very young Jack Nicholson. Yeah. And it had basically the same story, a lot of, and most of the same characters. Like you pointed out, it came, it thundered, it left, and then, you know, they found it. But even that was not original. I found a couple of sources that said that there are some really interesting literary roots for this thing. One that they said was the most direct inspiration, and I tried to find this. I wanted to read these short stories, but I'm like, I have to buy whole books in order to do that, and I'm a little pressed for time. So That's a little unfortunate as well. Yeah, yeah. But they mentioned Green Thoughts, which is a 1932 short story by John Collier that has a man-eating plant. And a Hollywood writer named Dennis Madougal, my apologies if I said that wrong, has suggested that Griffith, the original writer, was influenced by an Arthur C. Clarke story from 1956. Really? That one I did not know. Yeah, it was called The Reluctant Orchid. That's interesting. Which, in turn, The Reluctant Orchid was inspired by a 1905 H.G. Wells story called The Flowering <laughs> of the Strange Orchid. It's, the, wow. it's just this it's, spiral into the ground. It's man-eating plants all the way down. <laughs> yeah, yeah man, it's Audrey's all the way down. <laughs> wow. Uh, yeah. Boy. Yeah, so, so there you go. So it, there, there's a lineage, a history. You might say, and, you know, we mentioned it cost twenty five million to make, which was who <laughs> blows the original budget. Uh, the movie, the original movie's budget out of the water it was made for thirty thousand dollars, which accounting for inflation of twenty nineteen, which means it would be twice this much now. <laughs> it was uh, two hundred and forty thousand dollars. Still not a lot. Yeah, it's still, still not, a, not lot. a lot. It's still not a lot. So basically, the stage musical came about in nineteen eighty two. And uh, you had some things to share with us about the Broadway version, which I have, well, not the Broadway, but the stage version, which I have seen. There was a troupe that came through and performed it here on the island right before COVID, which was really cool. Awesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They, and they I, did it in the Arboretum, which was really fun. That makes, that's uh, actually quite a good plan. Um, mm-hmm. If you can, if you can swing it. Yeah. That would be a good place to do that. Mm-hmm. You don't want to hurt the other plants though. And there's a lot of, to really get the effect is at the end, if you have the wherewithal to do it, the money and the talent, uh, to have the vines coming out into the theater where people are sitting yeah. and really 
push forward that I'm taking over kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, there was talk about having an actual, one of the actual plant monsters on the island play Audrey too, and that was very quickly shut down <laughs> because I'm sure. OSHA and other things, honestly. But, you know, well, safety you know, regulations. You have, they are not mind-controlling plants, but they are definitely very persuasive. Yes, yes. But tell us a little bit about the stage version that directly inspired this. So you had all of those short stories... Corman, 1982 stage musical off off Broadway. Okay, Howard Ashman and basically wrote the play. He also wrote the lyrics to the to all the songs. Alan Menken, of course, brought in his talent as a as a composer and composed the music. And they were very very conscious that they needed to because of the humor involved, and they didn't want to make it modern. They said, okay, well, where do we need to put this? The 50s is a little too. too far behind and the humor in the 50s was a little bit different so they said hey let's throw it into the 60s you know you have rock and roll is now an established thing you also have you still have doo-wop going on you've got girl groups you've got boy groups let's solidify it there the music is interesting and while they had a hit because the people who went to see it weren't just young people these are the I don't want to say the glitterati going to the off off Broadway, but these are the people. <laughs> these are people who are who lived through the '60s, mm-hmm. so they immediately clued into that music. Mm-hmm. And let me tell you, having the the Greek chorus of yes, uh, Chiffon, yeah, that and that is uh, a that made me that, that made me happy because that is a, that's a very traditional was, literary thing to do. Now what, you were going to bring up their names. I'm sorry, what are their names? Okay, I. You know what? I just completely lost them. I know it's a Ronette, Crystal, and Chiffon. Chiffon, I yes. There we go. The unique thing that they that uh, Ashman did is having them both a part of the story as the urchins and outside of the story, commenting on it and singing about it. So it was a very different different than the Greek mm-hmm. chorus or Greek muses, where they would merely comment and tell you about the doom mm-hmm. that was coming in mm-hmm. so they were the greek chorus traditionally was there for the sake of the audience they were kind of yes. talking to the audience i actually found out that the the first instance of, that's why we call it a greek chorus it was used by sophocles in a play called yes. antigone yep. but you've seen it everywhere oh, shakespeare did it on occasion he would have choruses that were yes. ad- addressing the audience there are films that do it it's very popular in musicals very popular here, I think it was done more for comedic effect and for the uniqueness of doing mm-hmm. this in, an, in a, a 1980s, about the 1960s mm-hmm. format. I've seen it done in Shakespeare where it's not called for, where they will have people saying things to the audience that aren't supposed to be said to the audience, but it's still within that it's framework. within the text of the play. Exactly. So here, they did. They, they took some, he took this idea of the Greek chorus and made it... I don't, I guess fun because <laughs> the girls, when they're, when they're on, when they're not urchins, they are glammed out. They are 1960s mm-hmm. girl group. Oh my and gosh. The, is, in the, in the movie, oh. I, I know you're probably, are you talking about the stage play or the movie both, right now? Both. They both. Do the, okay. They do this because in the, in the movie, they, they're constant. They're, they have a new outfit. Yes. <laughs> Every song has a new outfit. It's, yeah. Yes, Jimmy. I know oh. it's like Padme in episode one. She has a new outfit in every scene. And they all have new outfits, outfits every scene. Their outfits are very functional. They can be hidden under the baggier urchin clothes. Mm-hmm. And they, in a good version of the stage play, 
unlike most community theaters can get away with. They will be in their, their super nice outfit first for the opening Little Shop of Horrors theme song. Mm-hmm. And then they little will... Little Shop, Little Shop of Horrors. Exactly. <laughs> They'll go behind some kind of partition and they will put on their urchin clothes on top of that so that when they do have time, they can shed the, that both sets of clothes and yeah. put on the new And you set know this because we should have led with this. You were involved in a production of this. I was involved in two productions of this. Um, oh, really? The, the first time was my was way back at Community Theater. Mm-hmm. Um, Which was a big reason why you requested this film. Yes, absolutely, because I absolutely love it. Plus puppets. Um, <laughs> well, that's the side benefit because Tui is a puppet uh, of the various sizes. But yeah, the first time I played Oren Scrivello. <gasps> you were, you'll be a dentist. I, I did a, a more, started doing a pastiche of Steve Martin's version of it. And the director took me aside and said, we can't have you doing that. Please do something else. And so, because Steve Martin chose Elvis... A, well, a really stupid yeah. Elvis. <laughs> well, yeah. See, that's the interesting thing because I, I listened to oh my gosh the Blu-ray that I have yeah. in the film vault for this. It's got commentaries for days. But, I know. <laughs> but uh, Frank Oz actually said that the Steve Martin who played Oren DDS took him uh, you know, took him aside and he said, "Hey, I don't just want to be Fonzie." the Fonz, right. you know, from, for those who don't know, happy days, it was a 70s sitcom, <laughs> but, uh, you know, if you, you ever heard the term jumping the shark, that's where it came from. But indeed he said, I don't want to do that. So he worked really hard to make his version. We'll say his version of Oren, a unique character. Now, Frank Oz did say that if he took inspiration from anybody, yes, it was Elvis. There is a right. bit of Elvis and, the, in the, Martin's the take on Oren. It's the hair. It mm-hmm. is definitely that. That is very much an Elvis in the 60s hair. Mm-hmm. But he otherwise, in. he's just kind of greaser. And remarkably, I mean, for a guy who went to, to medical school to be a dentist, he is remarkably stupid. Yeah, which I think and, is the joke. In, <laughs> yeah, and that's in the that's in the play as well. He is not the brightest bulb, and it's wonderful. So I did more of a like a Southern hick version of it <laughs> can you uh, can you share a little bit of your take on Oren with us well let me tell you something boy i know you i know you you're that plant guy ain't you oh it's gotta be here ain't it oh oh that's a nice plant big what's it eat uh, <laughs> you sound like my friend michael that's gonna hurt oh that's gonna hurt. <laughs> Ha! <laughs> That's going to come back and bite you. I'll let it. I'll let it. I could take it. <clears throat> anyway, so that was that. It was a, it was a college production. Um, now, who were you I, the second time? The second time was in 2019, I think. Oh, just a yeah, few had short years ago. Yeah, and I, unfortunately, I did try out for Oren, and I did not get it. I got beat out by a younger, much more talented gentleman. Uh, okay. Uh, which is fine. I mean, that's that's the nature of community theater. However, the director, who is a, a friend of mine, he said, your comic timing is too perfect, so we are going to have you as the What's first this? customer. No, oh. the first customer. Oh, I the got first to customer. Played by, what is it, Christopher Guest in the movie? Christopher Guest. And he said, I want you to do Christopher Guest. He had me read for Christopher, you know, as Christopher Guest, and I went, my, that's an unusual plant. Wherever did you get it? 
And he said, I want you to be basically a cartoon character. I went, I can do that. Yeah, which is funny because that was that was kind of the process that Christopher Guest went through when he, exactly. when they were making this movie because and you can actually see his first take on mm-hmm. the Blu-ray in the deleted scenes. And because Frank Oz said the first time he read the lines as the customer, he did it more naturalistically and he had yep. to take him and say, like, no, 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 I need you to be a cartoon. Yep. And then he went and through and he's like, Bye, what an unusual plant you have. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it, and Christopher Guest is perfect because he's such a, a quiet, unassuming actor in, or a quiet, unassuming man in his normal life. And he puts on these these faces to be these characters, like Count Rugen from Princess Bride. Oh, <laughs> completely different. I mean, just you know, a sociopath. And now he's a 1960s, you know, businessman, but completely vapid, devoid of soul, with this soulless smile on his face. And the staring eyes that have absolutely nothing behind them. Yes. And they had me come in from behind the set. So you see me walk by the window. And when they had me do it the first time, the director starts laughing so hard, he had to stop us. And I said, and we all come out and say, what? And he says, Damon, you look like a Muppet walking back behind. <laughs> I said, well, I can change that. He says, don't keep doing it. It's brilliant. <laughs> so I did my little Muppet walk. And then I back up, turn, <laughs> notice the plant. It's like, what is that? And then I <laughs> rush to the front door and I walk in and I do almost pitch perfect Christopher Guest throughout the whole thing. And oh my uh, gosh. And so I did that scene. I got to listen to Dadu, which is one of, again, one of my favorite ones because it's not, it's mostly spoken word with a doo-wop. Yes. Uh, underpining. Then my scene was over and I thought, okay, I'm, I'm just in the chorus for the rest of this. What am I going to do? And what is not, in the stage play, but is in the original 1960s movie, the masochistic patient for Dr. Oren Scrivello, which was the role that Jack Nicholson played, which was named, let me see, I've got it right here in my notes. Do, 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 the yeah, because they changed it in the movie. Yes. Jack Nicholson's name was Wilbur Force. Yeah, Wilbur Force. Yeah, but it's uh, it's Arthur Denton just, in the movie, yes, which Denton. just made me laugh. The Douglas Adams fan in me laughed. It was like, <laughs> like Arthur exactly. Denton? Well, <laughs> Denton, is, Denton is also the covering of the interior of a tooth. So mm-hmm. that's the uh, other reason why they went with that. But yes, not in the music, stage musical at all. It was never put in. No, but they um, put it in the movie because it was in the, in, the 60s, uh, in the original 60s movie. And it was funny. It was another way to get do a funny bit. Yes, because, oh my gosh, that's something we need to talk about with this movie because I'm just going to say this. I know they went through several possibilities for who to direct this, but Frank Oz was the perfect one to do this. I mean, yeah. you should have saw some of the things. Like, they were considering John Landis. Mm-hmm. The weird, the craziest one was they thought about Martin Scorsese. And that may actually, that makes sense. Martin Scorsese was a protege of Roger Corman. Yes. Well, it was so, funny because, like, I read in one of my sources that Scorsese wanted to film the movie in 3D and things like uh, that. But they ended up going with Frank Oz. And honestly, I'm glad they went with Frank Oz because his puppetry experience with the Muppets, I'm sure, came in very handy. In fact, he brought in a lot of people from Jim Henson to help him with this, including Brian Henson, Jim Henson's son actually well, helped with that, the larger but, versions of Audrey. By that point, Jim Henson had died of pneumonia. No, no, not, so they, not then. I think it was in the... Uh, it was, no, he died, he, died in the, he died in the early 80s. He died the really? same day that oh, Sammy Davis Jr. died. And that was in 1982 or 83. So the, the Jim Henson 
creature shop was being run by. You just got fact checked by Jimmy. Excuse me. He died in 1990. It was 1990, really? Because God, I remember it being earlier. Damn. All right. Fact check. Yeah, I remembered that because I was like, wait a minute, didn't they make a big deal about the fact that? He died right before a Muppet Christmas Carol. That was kind of a big deal. Okay. Yeah, you're right. I was, uh, I'm thinking it. Yeah. Okay. Mea culpa. I was wrong. Hey, it, However, it's a badge of honor to get fact-checked by Jimmy on this show. This is true. This had to happen sooner or later. Yeah. However, Jim Henson himself did not work on the, on the movie at all or no. on the puppets. So we're getting back to my other role. Our director added back in that particular scene because he wanted me to be a patient being tortured by Orrin Scrivello. And so that scene opens with me in the chair, him, you know, half on the chair, just grinding away at me and me screaming in pain and, and then me running out and then Seymour kid. Oh, yeah. really matter. oh yeah, so you in. were the, in the movie. It was the little girl. Yes. And so yeah. I was, they kind of combined the two roles, which the, the girl in the movie was Jim Henson's daughter. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. That's Heather? Right. Heather, Heather, Heather Henson. Heather yeah. Henson. She had the big contraption on her face. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. Gotta love it. Uh, yeah. Uh, but yeah, uh, so, like I was saying, the perfect director. Oh, wait, did you have something else? I'll no, no, I'm, I'm good. Uh, okay. I wanted to jump off of that because one of the things that's amazing about the movie is not only did they have the perfect director, they have quite possibly the perfect cast for this. Including Indeed. a lot of celebrity cameos, one of whom is Bill Murray as the masochistic patient for Dr. Oren. Indeed. <laughs> Which is and so great because Dr. Oren is a sadist. So, like, they're seen together. because So you have these two geniuses of comedy doing a scene together in this movie. And from what I understand, what Martin did was scripted. But once they go into the operating room, all of Bill Murray's lines are ad-libbed. Yep. Everything he did, everything he said, all his little bits, completely off, off the uh, cuff. Off the cuff. He had a little baggie of the mouth cotton Yes, <laughs> in, his, in his shirt, and he just kept putting that in, and he's looking in the mirror as he's doing it. And you know, Steve doesn't know what's going on because he's busy doing his shtick. Yeah. And so he's like, oh, wow, you're already, okay, let's go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so you have these two ge comedy geniuses doing this scene together. And I, when I watch it, I was like, this scene is the unstoppable force and the immovable object. It's that old joke, you know, masochist says to the sadist, hurt me, sadist says no. Yeah. <laughs> and you that's know, what's so like, brilliant. It's like, this is what, what happens when the masochist goes in to the sadist. The sadist will not be happy because the masochist no. is happy. <laughs> oh, yes. And they showed that perfectly. The The look on Steve Martin's face when he realizes what he's doing is causing pleasure rather than pain uh -huh. is an actual reaction that a, a true sadist would have. It's like, <laughs> get out. Yeah. And then, like, I, I this was the crazy thing with, with Frank Oz's commentary. He remembers how many takes a lot of the shots took. Yeah. It's kind of like, like one of the, what you would think would be one of the simpler scenes. He said took 73 takes. So it's like what you're seeing here, that's take 73, yep. which was the <laughs> scene where Audrey or bigger Audrey was pulling himself toward the cash register and getting in the oh cash register God. to get the Just, dime to use the payphone. He said that took 73 <sighs> takes. 
<laughs> well, yeah. I mean, the, the animatronics to do that, to move that puppet, to get the, get it yeah, right. It had as many as 60 people operating it. Absolutely. And by the way, I later I'll do this because I think it needs to be, I have a list of the principal plant operators. Oh yes. We'll talk about that. But he said, oh, going back to the dentist scene, he said that they didn't have a scripted ending for their scene. So he told, <laughs> just said, Hey, Steve, Bill, just come up with something. So yep. they would, they did, I think he said 30 or 32 takes and they were doing something different every time, which is just when Seymour is just sitting there and he's waiting his turn. Yeah. You know, he's, he's hiding the oh. gun and, <laughs> and Oren is just kicking the patient out and they did something different every single time. And the one that they went with was he kicks him out and then he, he clutches because he tries to steal one of his ghastly dentistry tools it was the one he was using on his tongue yeah and he just uh he just he tried to steal it he takes it i was like what are you doing trying to steal it he kicks him out he says sicko (laughs) (laughs) it just walks away and i'm like pot kettle pot kettle (laughs) yeah it's so good it's so good then he just looks at seymour and he's like because he's so frustrated that he didn't does it scare the hell out of you if i came at you with this (laughs) yeah he's like come here boy (laughs) so because he's so frustrated (laughs) that he couldn't make that guy suffer (laughs) so Uh, i was like i'm gonna do it to you and then that leads to him and, and I mean, we, this is something we can get into if you want to. And then it leads to Absolutely. the scene because that's the interesting thing about this is that, and I've did some research on this because, you know, we're already talking about, you know, the Greek chorus being this classical literary thing, finding its way in here. Another classical literary motif that we're seeing in here is the Faustian bargain, which yes. even Frank Oz said, this movie is a Faustian bargain. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, so it's right out of the mouth of the director. So it's not just me. I thought it when we were watching it today. But then when Frank Oz just came out and said, like, oh, see, I'm not crazy. <laughs> now, shut up, Jimmy. <laughs> what ends up happening, the Faustian bargain is Audrey 2 is promising to give meek little Seymour the girl of his dreams and wealth and success and all of those things if he just feeds him. But what does Audrey 2 like? Audrey too likes blood. well at first it was just blood. <laughs> you, and you fresh. had the little song it's like you're never happy unless I open a vein. And oh. <laughs> and it sucks his finger and it basically gives him uh, what's the and, what is it? Anemia? It gives him anemia, anemia basically. Yeah. <laughs> and, and in the in the stage play it's much more evident that he gets he gets paler and paler as the as the play yeah. gets bigger and bigger. Yeah. Yeah, and he gets you know, weaker. You know, he's just kind of spacing out in the corner yep. somewhere yep. when everybody else. But is then talking. it, uh, but then it turns into it's like, feed me, Seymour, feed me all night long. And so he has. Dewey, you opened your trap. You talked. <laughs> yeah, and now he has to feed him people. But he's like, I don't want to do that. And he's like, Well, come on, surely you know someone who deserves to die. And then they have the little song where he sees Oren, who's dating. Um, be- original Audrey <laughs> and Audrey be- beating her regularly. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, he decides, you know, nothing, now nothing you know what? Screams. I'm going to, I'll get you the dentist. <laughs> nothing screams family friendly than, you know, <laughs> spousal abuse, <laughs> uh, yeah. even though they're not married, but uh, uh, yeah, you get the idea. Uh, uh. So <sighs> he's going in there. He's intent on killing him. But then the weird, the funny thing, and I actually really enjoy the nuance here because if they had gone all the way with it, where say, he killed Orin. Like he, even if he did it kind of reluctantly and by accident, he actually shot him. 
that would paint Seymour in a very negative light. But instead, <laughs> Oren does it to himself because he puts out this, he's so frustrated that he decides to go farther than he normally does. And he puts on this weirdo contraption because he gets high. This is a running gag with him. He gets high on laughing gas. Nitrous he snorts oxide. it. Like he has a little thing and he snorts it. Yep. He has, he says, I'm going to need some gas for this. Yeah. Oh, well, you know, I'm a, uh, I, I, I don't really, is it, I don't need gas. And no, it's not for you. It's for me. It's for me. Yeah. And you then know, I he, find a little nitro heightens the pleasure. Yeah. And then he <laughs> overdoses himself and breaks the mask so he can't take it off. And, does himself in indeed so technically seymour didn't kill him now he mutilated the body to feed to audrey too but that's the extent of what he did there so it makes it kind of go to the second one let me handle the second one because that's with mushnik mushnik sees him cutting up oren's body back on the back dock yes he panics goes away comes back when he realizes that seymour is now with audrey the original Audrey. Yeah, Audrey and so he decides to blackmail Seymour, says, uh, you're going to go away, you're going to leave me the plant, but you got to tell me how to feed it. Tell me your secret gardening tips. And obviously, uh, Tui is very hungry by this point because he's very large. And Seymour is, you know, doesn't want to do this, knows it's bad, doesn't want to kill Mr. Mushnik. Mr. is holding a gun on him, so it's not like he can. And he's saying, uh, well, you need to water him on you know, the Thursdays. You need to give him minerals all the time, slowly backing Mr. Mushnik up to the open mm-hmm. trap of, of Tui. And Tui then takes it from there once Mushnik turns around and says, what in God's name? Bam, closes, chews him a couple bit, and swallows him. Yep. Interesting little bit here, though. And I don't know, I can't remember from my mind if this is also part of the play, but... Specifically in this movie, Vincent Gardenia, who plays Mr. Mushnik, does not scream in pain, not once. He's being chomped. He is being hurt. And all he is saying is, wait, no, wait. If you need to go back and watch it, watch it, because he is not in pain at all. That's he's being swallowed and chewed by this massive alien plant. It is, I thought that was one of the funniest bits. Uh, I, I didn't notice that. Weirdly it was, it's it's very hilarious because oh my, you know I'm sorry if I'm in the maw of some kind of critter that's intent on eating me and using me for sustenance I would be screaming a yeah. little bit more than wait no yeah yeah but, well and yeah. but that that brings up another interesting question did Seymour kill him too I thought about no. that watching it he, I would argue he, no it was Chewy yeah. all he did was just kind Facilitate. of position him. Right, so he, he was a I mean, facilitator. If, if Seymour was going to get arrested, he might get arrested as an accessory, but he didn't Complex. do the actual murder. No, no. That's the thing is, Seymour blames himself for all of these because he is essentially a good person and a very meek person, so he is going to assume the worst about himself. Mm-hmm. But no, he never actually commits an act other than desecration of a of a body. Yeah, and that's really all he's done. It because. Yeah. He was perfectly content to feed his own blood to this uh, monster plant. Yeah, which is interesting because, uh, and I believe, I think this is only in the director's cut because there's two versions of this movie and we, we'll talk about both of them. Yeah. And uh, there, and I think it's in the director's cut. He says to Audrey, one, is like, I've done awful things, but never to you. Yeah. I mean, again, his personality is so beaten down by the way he's been treated by Mr. Mushnick all mm-hmm. these years as an orphan 
that he can't help but think that everything he does is terrible. Yeah. Which is and interesting. And the one bright spot in his life is Audrey. Mm-hmm. Which is interesting because the entire play does not make it into the movie. They cut some things mm-hmm. out, including they cut out yep. some of the songs, including yep. one that was, I think, was focusing on Mr. Mushnick. And you find out that Mr. Mushnick in the movie he seems like he seems decent enough until the end where he's trying to blackmail. Right. He's not a nice guy. Yeah, no. but in the stage play, he's much less of a nice guy. <laughs> He adopted, quote unquote, Seymour specifically to be little more than a slave. He does pay him a, a, a pittance and gives him every other Sunday off. So, no, Seymour thinks he's a good man. But the song that was left out is Mushnik and Son, mm-hmm. which is after they start becoming successful with, with Tui in, in the window there. Mushnik is extrapolating about how far they're going to go or how far Mushnik is going to go and you know, Seymour will be there and he will, he will supposedly change the name to Mushniks and Sons. They will be famous, rich, blah, 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 yada, yada, yada. But it's always couched in, this is going to happen to me and you'll be there. Yeah. So yeah, it's not, not, it would look, it would have looked bad. (laughs) And I don't think as a movie going audience that they, they already, you were kind of liking Mushnik for the weird, you know, kind of greedy guy that he was wasn't inherently bad and what he was actually doing at the end. Uh, okay. Yeah. That's when he starts getting even more greedy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But he, yeah. He and by the way, just for anyone who wants to know, that was one of four songs from the stage play that were cut out of the movie. The other ones were closed for renovation. Yeah. Now it's just the gas and call back in the morning. And if you watch the theatrical version, they cut out a fifth song, which was, don't feed the plants. Yeah. Or finale, don't feed, don't the, feed the plants. Now, the director's cut puts it back. Yes, where it belongs. But interestingly, it <clears throat> cut several songs out and then made a new song that is my favorite song in the musical. Because <laughs> <laughs> I remember yeah. I, was list, I, was gonna, I was listening to the stage show soundtrack and I'm like, where's Mean Green Mother? Where's Mean it's Green Mother? Who? And then I'm like, wait, they made it for the movie? Yeah. Why is my favorite song in the movie and not the stage show? Howard Ashman came back and said, in fact, there is a quote, Frank Oz, Howard Ashman, he says, Howard Ashman, the author of Little Shop, the playwright and the lyricist, gave me the best advice of anybody ever regarding directing this kind of movie. He said, Frank, this is supposed to be stupid. And it was the best (laughs) advice. He said, my tongue was firmly in my cheek when I wrote this. So giving him that advice, because obviously Frank Oz went back to Howard Ashman for blessing and advice. And one of the things he said is, I, I need, I need the, the plant needs to have another song, a big showy song. And Ashman said, oh, I got the perfect thing for you. He should be the worst of the worst, and he should be the only one who cusses <laughs> in the movie. And I'm going to make sure the song says that. And the song has a couple of versions, too. There's the version that's in the movie, and then there's the version that's on the soundtrack. Yeah. Yeah, and um, that which I'm guessing is the one that was performed because, so everyone knows, there's a reason why this is one of the best. Uh, this is possibly the best song in the movie is because it was nominated for an Oscar, and I'll tell you what else it was nominated for and what it lost to because it didn't win. But I no, think that's the one. I'm guessing that's the one they performed at the Oscars with the uh, Levi Strauss and the Four Tops. Yeah, because Levi, Levi Strauss is Levi the Stubbs. voice of no, Levi Audrey. Stubbs. Audrey too. 
It's Levi Stubbs. Stubbs. Oh, sorry. I wrote Str- it. Levi, Levi Strauss makes pants. Yeah, that's right. Not, that's, not pants, yeah. not plants. Yes. <laughs> you have impressed Jimmy. Nice job. I do my best. Yeah. So anyway. <laughs> so you were saying song. Mean Green Mother from mean Outer Space. Mother from Outer Space. Anyway, yeah. So uh, Howard Ashman you know, wrote this thing up. And obviously everybody loved it. And that's, again, the multiple lyrics, the ones you get in the movie are different than the one on the soundtrack. Yep. They add, there are kaiju references in it. Yeah, King Kong. King Kong. Uh, uh, well, how did that, uh, I'm one. trying to remember how that lyric went. Is like, let, me, let me see. Um, uh, I don't come don't from no talk black to lady. me about old King Kong. King Kong. You think he's the worst? Well, you're thinking wrong. <laughs> don't talk to me about Frankenstein. He got a temper. Ha! He ain't got mine. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And it's heavy electric guitar throughout the, which is, you don't yeah, hear. It's got really, a, it's got a really intense beat. <laughs> it's very, it's very much the rock and roll, the dirty rock and roll. Yeah, because that, that was the, the thing. Yeah, that was a that was something that Frank Oz said he wanted to maintain because he's like, this is the off off Broadway. The because yes. the when you're off off Broadway or even just off Broadway, he said there's an edge to it, and he wanted to keep the edge. That's why he intentionally made sure not to film it like a traditional Hollywood musical with some big grand shot that you know with a bunch of people in it. Now there's one shot toward the end of uh, you know early on that's kind of like that, but he's still tried to pull it in a little bit so that it didn't quite go as grandiose because that's not the style of musical that you have here. He wanted to keep that edge. Yeah. Well, he was the master of close-ups too. I mean, and that was essential for learning to love these characters. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which we'll get into that as well when we talk about the ending, but you know, mean green mother from outer space was nominated for best original song in 1987. Mm -hmm. The other nominees were, Glory of Love from Karate Kid Part 2. Life in a Looking Glass from That's Life. And Somewhere Out There from an American Tale. You want to talk about a song that'll and a movie that'll break your heart. Good lord. I wonder which one won. Uh that none of those are the winners. They all lost to something else. Should we get the drum roll, please? <laughs> oh, good. That's I know I don't have to play it off of the soundboard. <laughs> there you go. Although you might want to clean off your microphone a little bit there. Yeah. yeah excuse me. Yeah. There yeah. You there go. you go. There you go. Uh, it won't surprise you because there were a lot of big popular movies in 1986. It's a banner year. Yes. Are you ready for this? Just come on. I'm just sitting here waiting. <laughs> Take my breath away from Top Gun. Oh God, that movie. <laughs> It will not leave me alone. <laughs> so that's what it, that's what Mean Green Mother lost to. <laughs> and I guess I guess it's deserved since it had you know the uh, box office spoke obviously, and that obviously affected the voters for the Academy. I think they were wrong. <laughs> you would have given it I to mean, Mean Green Mother. I would have given it to Mean Green or the one from uh, the Five Hole movie. Uh, somewhere out there. Somewhere out there, just because the. Uh, the, the the Top Gun movie, the Top Gun song just didn't touch me personally mm-hmm. the way that Mean Green Mother or Somewhere Out There did. Somewhere yeah. Out There, it just it again, it's just grabbing your heartstrings and yanking. Yes, and yes. I, I guess it's, it's it means it's last longer because you walk out of the theater with that that feeling. And Mean Green Mother, you go out toe tapping. It's like, okay, what was that lyric again? Mm-hmm. I need to, I need to get the soundtrack. I need to get that because that was a that was a banger. Mm-hmm. Whereas, I mean. Eh, 
Top Gun? I mean, we all knew what it was as a movie. <laughs> it was what it was. And the song's like, okay, see, yeah, yeah, okay, it's a song. And it got overplayed in the radio. <laughs> of course it did. But uh, I, I, I have a lot of disputes with things at the Academy. Yeah, we all do. We all do. The movie was also nominated for Best Special Effects. And somehow... I am in shock. It, I did not know that. That yeah, is brand new nominated information. For be- yep, nominated <laughs> for Best Special Effects. And it did not win. <laughs> and that blows me away, too. It just, I, I couldn't uh, believe that. I was like, what did... I'm like... it. It was nominated, but did, who else was nominated? Nineteen eighty six. Good lord, there was so much coming out in nineteen eighty six. Yes, there was. That's the problem. Is was a, a, there was a glut of good things. Yeah, yeah, out. yeah. The other nominee that did not win was Poltergeist two. Jeez. Well, okay. But when I tell you who actually won, you're gonna be like, "Yeah, I get it." <laughs> Probably. <laughs> They both lost to aliens. Yeah. I'm okay with that because it's one of my favorite movies and my, one of my favorite sequels. So I can't really complain too much about that, but come on the, this, the puppet artistry alone. Yeah. Well, you know what? That is a great way to transition to talking about this puppet or rather all six or seven of them. Some sources I looked at said six, some said seven. Oh boy, is this going to be a discussion or not? Well, this is going to be in, this is going to be an info dump, folks. Sorry. All right, here we go because I know, <laughs> I know you got lots of notes about the puppet, and I did take I some notes about the notes. puppet myself. But I'm like, I know David's going to be bringing. I am the, the, the info master. on the puppet. You got to give it to me, man. You got to <laughs> give it to me. I'm the puppet master. This is my shtick now on this show. <laughs> All right, let's uh, let's get started with your basics, Lyle Conway. Yes. Was the primary Muppet designer. And Richard Conway. No relation. No relation. (laughs) And the animatronic specialist from Henson's Creature Shop. He alone conceived of Audrey 2's appearance. Well, I can't say alone. He did have some help from Brian Henson. And that was to keep it threatening but approachable. Mm-hmm. I think is how it was it was made. Uh, they didn't. The lips on it have has has been a controversy since I think the early two thousands. They started seeing it because it was voiced by Levi Stubbs, who is a black man. They felt that it was mocking or being a stereotype of a caricature. A yes, a very caricature. And in addition to that, that brings in a whole other idea that it's in the slums. People who sound like this who like this kind of music are, are dangerous and inherently they'll, they'll get you to do horrible things. It's a whole thing that Frank Oz is frankly like, what? That, <laughs> no, no, that's not the intention. The idea that they had that Conway and Brian Hansen had was that the lips were Audrey two's way of looking more like Seymour. Mm-hmm. And that's what they based it on. They looked at Rick Moranis's lips and they used that as their base to fashion the lips around the pod. It was to make him look anthropomorphic. Much more anthropomorphic. Which made him look, uh, you know, which made him look, I guess, more trustworthy. Which goes back to the whole Faustian uh, bargain thing, because, you know, if if it looks inhuman, humans naturally repulse against that. Yes. But if you start making it anthropomorphic, okay, well, uh, we'll trust it a little bit more. And it, star- you know? and it starts with the, it starts with the Maxwell House can bud, where it is very pale and 
little pale pink and little pale green yeah. and very sweet looking and there's no thorns there's no yeah. vines that, that's the uh, that's the marketable version that you can go that's buy at the store mar- you know exactly you know it's, it's, a, it's a funko pop before funko pops <laughs> and there is an audrey 2 funko pop and i kind of indeed <laughs> but there were again like you said they there's some discrepancy about how many of the puppets were actually made the source i said uh, had said six but again that number because they're going to get damaged. They're going to get replaced, whatever. Yeah. But they required nightly touch-ups from the paint department. Yes. Because the, the colors would wash out under the harsh studio lighting. And again, when they started using dust and moisture and everything, they just, the, the poor, the poor puppet crew uh, and oh my heads in studios had to come in every night after filming and just spend hours, especially with the giant Tui at the end the amount of time that they had to spend repainting this thing everywhere. Yeah. Oh, and not, not uh, just the outside, the inside, because the inside was covered in KY jelly. Oh, so they had to, they had to scrape the jelly off, dry it, and then reapply the paint to make sure that the orchid looking formations inside were as vibrant as they were on the initial. Yes. Appearance. Yes. I mean, um, I actually found, and I found in one of the documentaries on the Blu-ray, Mr. Conway. Well, no, it wasn't him specifically but they gave the actual numbers for the amount of stuff that went into all of these puppets oh god yes it was amazing Fifteen thousand handmade leaves mm-hmm. two thousand feet of vine that is almost half a mile it's and then incredible but speaking of miles 11 and a half miles of cable yeah oh yeah you gotta if you want those vines to work if you want those lips to move, if you want that pod to open, you need cable and actuators. And they yeah. had so many. Yeah. And the, the crazy thought is, and I think Frank Oz miscounted a little bit, but there are almost no optical effects in this nope. movie. There's maybe nope. two or three in the entire movie. Yep. The re- and, All uh, the rest of the special effects are done in camera. That is and that was- crazy to think about. And that is what Frank Oz wanted. He said, I, I, there's no CGI in any of this. There, CGI was in its infancy back then. He said that would have looked terrible. Yeah. He said everything is practical. Everything is on camera. Everything is happening as it's yeah. happening. Yeah. I think, no, like, I think he pointed out there's only like, like the only optical effects there is there's the lightning bolt at the Chinese florist, right. which, is, which is when Audrey 2 arrives. There's one, I think he said the subway in one of the early shots, I think was added yeah. in. The L train. The L train. Because it's an elevated train. Yeah. yeah. And I think there's one in the director's cut in the extended ending. And then I found out because the extended ending had never been finished. That's This is the crazy thought. The, oh, yes. Yeah, it that. had to be restored in 2012. Mm-hmm. And, and in order to and... finish it, they had to they touched it up a little bit digitally just to kind of polish it up and get it presentable they yeah they had to get rid of some of the uh because some of the cables and and wires were visible in the original yeah because uh, it was still pretty rough they never finished it was it. really rough yeah. <laughs> I, I, I remember watching when they when the the first dvd came out and they had deleted scenes and the original ending i went what awesome and it's like and it had frank oz talking over it and then talking about how and it was very basic it didn't it wasn't as extended as in the director's cut that we have now they to actually manipulate Audrey on set every day that they were filming from the smallest one, like the one he takes to the radio station that would took four people, four people to do 
a a lap sized <laughs> puppet. A lap sized puppet where all it really does is look at look at Seymour and then look at a woman's butt and attempt to yeah. bite it. <laughs> yeah. And uh, yeah, talk about salacious. And that was just yeah. Well, the fact that she was also wearing red, the color of blood. I mean, yeah, yeah. yeah. The whole and then Seymour just grabs is like, what, what are you doing? And they, the, the, yeah. the puppet, there's so much little nuances to the puppet with how it reacts. Oh. When Seymour freaks out and grabs him before he can do yeah. that, the puppet actually reacts. Like, there's a little reaction like, what? <laughs> well, not just reacts, but it's 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 leaves are, are flapping around like, you know, what the f***? Come on, just let me get a taste, okay? <laughs> And the reaction that I, the, when I first saw it and, and every subsequent action, the first thing I'm thinking of, it's a dog. Yes. It's a dog that's <laughs> off its leash and he is trying to keep it from biting people. And that does not go away. It's no, just, it's it, so it goes cute. throughout the whole thing. So then there's the lap. So there's the tiny one. And there's then the like, uh, there's also yeah. the one that's, I don't know if that's the lap size one, but when it grows the first time, which that's by the, the way, pu- that's, yeah, that that's was the all just forced perspective. Yep. Yep. So and it, that it was works. not an optical effect. And mm. Frank Oz explained how he did it. And I'm just like, oh my gosh, that is genius. I know. <laughs> and and this basically, is, this it was forced perspective. He zoomed the camera in, but the actual puppet, the larger puppet, it was the same one that they were using, but they used forced perspective. And they just put it behind the can and then yep. zoomed in. It was actually behind yep. the can and that made it look larger. And then, of course, they had the can bulging out. They had plungers to to kind of move whatever was inside. To- yes, to make it look like it was expanding within the Maxwell House can. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and then the, uh, we had the kind of like when it first started to get large and that's when it started to get popular and people were coming to the started coming to the that shop. That would be the man size version. Yeah. They had two different ones that they used for that. Yes. And then there was the final one where it's kind of it's a little bit bigger than a human. And then that's when it starts talking and makes the Faustian deal with well, Seymour. And Well, what's interesting is that they had a what's called a stunt puppet for the larger one. And they had the actual speaking puppet. Mm-hmm. The stunt puppet was used for when it would, you know, fall over and hit the floor. Yeah. That was a, a completely unactuated, not wired. Yeah. Because obviously they don't want to hurt their, their main, I guess, star of the yeah. play, of the movie. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, you could talk about it like that because even Rick Moranis kind of joked that it, he got to a point where he just started talking to the puppet like it was just an ugly guy who was his <laughs> co-star. See, and that is not unique to Rick Moranis. When Jim Henson would go on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson and he would bring Kermit or Rolf or whatever with him, Johnny would immediately start talking to Jim. But when the puppet started talking, he found unbeknownst to him and not in control of himself, he would uh, begin talking to Kermit as if it was a real person. And he would comment on that on the air says, I don't know why I'm talking to you. You're a sock. (laughs) And Jim would say, that's the beauty of this. When a a puppeteer inhabits their creation and then Kermit says, I'll take it from here. Then he would start talking and, and Johnny would of course switch over and says, look, I did it again. And that's the beauty of the Henson creature shop is being able to make anything, a pot, a pan, a car, an otter, anything believable as a thinking, breathing, living thing. Mm-hmm. And a plant is already technically a living thing. So making Tui come to Personifying life it was not at hard at all. The only caveat is they could not move the pod fast enough for the songs. Yep. And, which was and a problem that they faced early on. And then- yep. Frank Oz stumbled on a solution. 
he told that story Brilliant. a couple of times on the Blu-ray. He yeah. said they they stumbled on it because he said they were he was looking at some test footage on a VHS and he was showing <laughs> it to somebody else who was working on it. This was really early in production. And right. he would fast forward and rewind it and he's like, hold on a second. And then he would speed it up a little bit. He's like, that looks right. So then he figured out this is how we do it. We yep. film the the puppet when it's talking it's singing we film it at 16 frames a second instead of 24 and then they then they could and then you know then they would speed it up a little bit to 24 Mm -hmm. and it looked correct the lip sync was fine the problem (laughs) was was rick moranis well i know not just not just moranis (laughs) any of the actors if they were interacting with the plant they had to talk slower and not just talk <laughs> and sing. move and sing yep. slower. And, and this was the first time I knew what was coming. I watched Rick Moranis. I watched his mouth. I watched his movements and I can finally see that it's sped up. Mm-hmm. I, I hadn't before. The illusion was flawless when I first saw it. It was flawless on every repeat viewing until now until knowing that they had to do that because of the complexity of this damn thing oh love this frank oz genius he uh, he really is he really is in fact he even said in his commentary like this is one of my favorite movies that i've ever made and i appreciate that so much and i'm sure it was hell to make oh it's (laughs) it was incredibly challenging he said it was incredible like they were on the what was it? The 007, because they filmed it in England. It was the on Albert, the 007 the, set. Yeah, the Albert Broccoli 007 stage. Yeah, at and it was Studios. cold. Yeah, they it no was <laughs> just cold. I'm like, what the hell? Why are they not heating this thing? But it was incredibly cold. It was it was hard. It was it was really hard. And but they plugged along and you know they got the through fact- it apparently they played a lot of ping pong ping pong was popular <laughs> well there's a lot of downtime when you got to make sure that the puppet's not falling apart yeah but I, I guess they, you know they you know they warm up the actuators yeah so they would play <laughs> ping pong so that was like a joke you know they would play jokes right. on each other involving ping pong well what another one of the wonderful things about this is they built skid row they built an entire yes. section of city inside yeah and they studio. actually would go to thrift stores to get the props to make it look authentic and I bring know, them from the united states phenomenal <laughs> the fact that they found an old a baby blue markalite phone for audrey to use in her apartment and she only uses it once and yet it's there the whole time whenever they show her apartment it's like oh my god where did you find baby blue <laughs> Holy crap, I had mustard yellow in my house. I mean, I don't know where. I don't know where they found it. I, honestly, it's... Yeah, it, it the production phenomenal. design in this film is uncanny. And, and that's actually the thing that's nice about this that is one of the advantages of making this into a film because, what was it, Minkin and Minkin. Ashman, Minkin. they wanted yeah, to Minkin. make this into a... Yeah, when they made the stage play, they wanted to make this into a movie and they personally asked Frank Oz to do it. He tried to say no at first because he didn't know if he could do it because like, that's going to be a lot of work. And then they were able to get him to do it. And one of the things that's interesting, especially if you've seen the stage play, because I have seen it, I've only seen it once, but I've seen it, is the stage play is very focused on the shop. They don't get yeah. out of the shop very often. No, everything and, happens either in the shop or in front of the shop, which yeah, is considered yeah, downtown. Yeah, but... Oz wanted to make this cinematic. So he had the characters leave the Mm -hmm. shop and go to other places. You see him use 
editing techniques or crazy camera angles to do things that you normally can't do in a stage play that really does accentuate what you're seeing. He takes advantage of the medium. And it brings you into the world that they're talking about and they sing yes. about in the opening sequence. You know that this is Skid Row. You can see that the, the street is cobbled. It's not just asphalt that's falling apart. These are like the underpining is cobblestone and yeah. there are potholes filled with disgusting water. And there's a bum constantly sleeping outside the shop. Yeah. It really, like it, oh. it just, you just, you are in this world. You it are is, and in this world. And it's such a, uh, a jar. Then when we go to Oren Scrivello's scene and his song about being a dentist, <laughs> you'll be a dentist. We are now actually downtown rather than Skid Row, and everything is clean. Everything is nice. There's storefronts, and it obviously looks like a stage still because the cars really aren't moving, but they're vintage cars, mm-hmm. and the sidewalk is spotless. And he bursts through the door to go into his offices, mm-hmm. and everything looks completely different than it, what yeah, we it's white seeing. and it's clean which is funny because they originally made it grungier and actually right. like we're supposed to make, look, make it look like it had blood splattered on it but that yeah. it made the test audiences a little too squeamish so yeah. you know they cut so they cut back on that. i'm actually kind of glad that they did because i like the pristine white sterile environment and i think it fits with oren's personality as much of a sadist as he is he's still a professional yes you know, yes. He still needs things to look a certain way before he tortures you. Yes. And then has his his receptionist nurse clean up after him. Yeah, and which is, I mean, I think it works because it offers a very nice contrast, like you were talking about, compared to exactly. Skid Row. Because that's the whole point. And Oz was vi- trying to visually communicate. That's why he didn't want big, grand Vista shots. Because he wanted right. the audience to feel just as trapped in Skid Row as the characters, because that's a big motivator for our characters is they want yeah. to get out of this slum. The they want to they want to do better for themselves. That's a big thing. You know, Seymour wants to be successful. Audrey, Audrey One, wants to get away from Oren and be with a you know a nice guy, you know, a, yeah, a good man so she can yeah. have the the, you know, the American dream. I, I said yes. before that The Blob was one of the most Americana movies you could probably see. This is a very Americana as well, and it, but it's a little bit tongue-in-cheek Americana, but I don't think in a mean-spirited sort of way. In her song, Somewhere That's Green, she is pining for the perfect life as she knows it in 1960. Yes. And we laugh at it because it is so basic. They would be lower middle class, if that, mm-hmm. if she got everything she wanted. But to her coming from where she is it is the best she can think of it is the pinnacle Mm -hmm. of what it means to be an american citizen that is successful Mm -hmm. and in that sense it's a very heartbreaking song yeah that uh she you okay there man no no i'm just a little choked up it's it's a very beautiful song and ellen green sells it with such pathos Mm -hmm. and emotion that's that's the thing i love about this especially the film version is even though the, you know, the guys who made this Ashman and Menken said that mm-hmm. they were doing this tongue in cheek. Oh, absolutely. They, but there's still a sincerity there. Yeah. It's tongue in cheek, but they, the characters and these actors, they sell it. It could be, it would have been easy to devolve into camp with this. Oh, absolutely. But it, but it doesn't absolutely. go there. It walks right up to that line and it doesn't cross it. Well, see, here's the thing. 
an author can write with whatever intention he wants. Once an actor gets a hold of that material, they have no control over how they're going to sell it. Mm-hmm. And Ellen Green knew that this was her song, barring this suddenly Seymour duet she has with, with Rick Moranis. Mm-hmm. This was a showcase for her. And she put as much honest emotion as she could into this song. And she sold it. She sold it on off-off Broadway. She sold it on Broadway. She sold it in the movie. Oh, yeah. Okay. Okay. So the the stage play got so popular, they were allowed to be on Broadway? (laughs) Yeah. They actually, they got a revival onto Broadway and she came back for that. Yeah. Because. And then they had her for the, they had her for the movie. Yeah, and yeah, she sells it so she sells it so much. In fact, uh, she actually—I think it was her. I think it was Ellen Green. I think it was Ellen Green. It was Ellen Green or Ashman. I think said that the thing about Audrey is that she's very mousy and talks Mm -hmm. like this. But when she sings, she's vulnerable. She gets to be herself, which I found interesting because when I watched the movie, when we get to suddenly Seymour. Her voice is not mousy anymore. A lot no. of times when she's singing, she still sounds like mousy little. Well, definitely little, definitely little in somewhere that's green. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But then when she's doing subtly Seymour, suddenly I think we're actually hearing Ellen Green's real voice because she doesn't sound yeah. like that. She, no, she doesn't. She not. puts that on. But subtly, yeah, suddenly Seymour. Well, <laughs> 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 uh, you know, because she's duetting with the man she actually loves. Mm-hmm. You know, subtly she's confident. She's. You know, she's stronger. She's herself. And I'm like, so that's why her voice sounds, she doesn't sound like mousy Audrey anymore. She sounds strong and powerful at that point, you know, and she could bellow, bellow out, you know, all of these lines with Rick Moranis. Let's segue to talking about that particular scene, because I find that scene incredibly fascinating. And I found something new that never, never occurred to me before. So it is a duet. He starts it. He has just told her that, you know, or she has found out that Oren has gone missing and that they suspect foul play. And he sheepishly asks, well, would that be so bad? And she, of course, says no. And she goes away crying and he thinks he's upset her. And she says, no, I think it would be the best thing ever. Mm-hmm. And because she felt starts, trapped because he basically, oh, she was, he basically, she he basically told her, if you break up with me, I hurt you. Exactly. And so, you know, she was living under threat. And again, weird thing to make a musical comedy about, but it fits with the horror aspect of the play. Now, this is supposed to be kind of a, 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 they're both coming out to each other. They're both expressing how they feel about each other in song form, which is a very mm-hmm. musical theater trope. Yeah, and it is. Although little, uh, what's interesting is Frank Oz said, because the stage play is like this, there's no transition to the music. It's just bam, right boom, into it. It just goes right in. Yeah. And I think that's part now, of that off, off Broadway edge. Yes. In, 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 in normal in, where the trope normally takes place apart from the, the music leading into what's going on. They don't do that. The way they film Seymour, Rick Moranis is there's a lot of close-ups and a lot of his, he's saying, well, look, I'm standing right before you. Here I am. I love you. But he looks worried the entire time. His face is not confident yet. He's, his words are belying that he's saying suddenly Seymour is standing beside you. You don't need no makeup. You know, you you're great just the way you are. And yet He's waiting for her to say, no, you're, you're a creep, you're a nerd, go away. And it never happens. But they're, they're filming him from a down angle up. Mm-hmm. So he's supposed to look big and heroic, and he just comes across even more nebbishy mm-hmm. in that first one. When she then go, has her big explosion, suddenly Seymour, 
and she's talking about how horrible her life has been. No one's, you know, her mom was poor. Her dad left her. Uh, nothing's ever been right. She meets a guy, first guy. She just says whatever. Yeah, uh, uh, while working at a club. She didn't go into club, detail, yeah. but it sounded. Yeah. It, you know, what was that? What was that? The gutter? I think it was. Uh, yeah, the gutter. The gutter. The gutter. And she, the gutter. she said, "I night, had to wear club. such." What, how did she put it? She described the clothes. I had to wear cheap, cheap and tawdry clothes, not cheap the not the nice clothes, things not, that I'm wearing right now. Not the nice things I'm wearing right now. Which I'm just like, I'm, they just leave it at that. I'm like, hmm. yeah, it's it's pretty <laughs> funny. It's a funny little bit, and that that is directly from the play too. It's yeah. it's, it's really good. But she when she turns around. And now, now they're in a ruin of a tenement building. Yes. And there's this big partial wall of brick standing there. And behind, you're seeing her in the foreground. And behind her is this partial wall. And she spins around to say, suddenly Seymour. And he steps out from behind the wall at that exact mm-hmm. moment. And he's supposed to be a, he's here, my, my knight in shining armor. And he's tentative. His shoulders are hunched. He's like, what? What? Yeah. Me? And it's it was it's both tragic and funny at the same time. Is that this is the big boom boom boom? These guys are in love moment, and they're you're not feeling it. It's two very damaged individuals. Yes, finding love amid a ruinous tenement building. Yes, and here's the bit I found: in every single crack and crevice around this thing, there is a wildflower growing. Mm. There is new life. There is spring happening. What? So the subtext or the context of where they are is they are in the worst place ever. They are in Skid Row. They are in a dilapidated, shattered, ruinous tenement building, the place that they don't want to be. And yet there's, and they're singing about their newfound love of each other. And there is this burgeoning new life coming out of the ruins mm. all around them. And I found that be- strangely beautiful and like subtle mm-hmm. for a play that had or a movie that has it been is, as much unsubtle as it can be. <laughs> exactly, it's got to bludgeon you over the head with every everything else. But this again, and that off off Broadway edge. <laughs> and I know it had to be Oz. It had to be him looking at that, saying, "We do so much on that. We did so much on the Muppet Show. Where if you don't look at the background, you're missing half the show." Mm-hmm. You're missing the little bits and pieces that we are putting in for for viewers to find. And I think he did that. I think he re- recognized, even though they're singing this song and they're not really showing us visually that they are the trope, what if we add this little bit of new life and possibility, the, mm-hmm. this springtime in the gutta? Yeah. And yeah. it's oddly moving. It, it is. That's, like I said, it's tongue-in-cheek. But only just enough. It does not hinder the pathos, and I love that. I, I understand now, and we'll talk about it in a bit with the ending. I understand now why the audience, like the test audiences, were mad at that original ending. I really oh, do, and well, I've got thoughts on that. But yeah. there's a couple of main, other main points that I do want to hit at. As usual, I overprepare sure. for the show. <laughs> I have so many notes. I have so many, and most of my took even before I started watching it. So, yeah. please have so have at it. Oh, <laughs> Jimmy would like your notes for his blog. I, I'm sure he would. I, a lot of what I have doesn't have really anything to do with the movie itself. It's more of like the back stuff. I have stuff about Roger Corman and and the people yeah. that worked for him, and yeah. I have stuff about others. Anyway, yeah. Just, yeah. But anyway, I do want to talk about. I hinted at it. 
there are a lot of celebrity cameos in this. We've talked oh, about so we many. talked about Steve Martin. There's so many talented people. We, we talked well, about Steve, Steve Martin, Martin cameo, Christopher you know. Guest. Yep. Uh, I'm trying to think of some of the John Candy. Well, John Candy. Okay. John, John Candy. Candy. I watched that, and I, Jimmy was even kind of nudging me. He was like, "Was this where?" <laughs> Your your on air persona came from because probably <laughs> it's like no I was channeling more the Robin Williams from Good Morning Vietnam but I can see it in this anyway, it's John Candy is this radio hair. host and I I don't think that character is in either of the previous versions if I remember correctly I think he was um, invented for not, the movie not in the nineteen not in the nineteen sixties version but weird Wilk Winkins, Wilkinson is in the stage play okay he he's is just okay. not as extreme. John Candy had a field day with this. Yeah, yeah. Uh, again, all him, ad-libbed. Gave him a little bit of free reign. And that's and that's that's the beauty of that is they've got he when he when Rick Moranis or when Seymour comes in holding Tui and John Candy's like, wait, what are you doing here? Ma'am, put your clothes back on. <laughs> What's your husband gonna say? I'm right here, wink. It's like Rick Moranis looks confused because he had no idea that that was gonna happen. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, and and then the then what's funny is depending on which version you watch, there's different celebrity cameos because they have oh, was yeah. it Richard Dooley? It is Paul Dooley. Paul Dooley. Excuse me. Paul, Paul Dooley, Dooley is the original Patrick Martin of licensing and marketing. Yes, who meets because we'll talk more in depth about the ending, but he appears subtly at a, at the top of a building when. Seymour's going to jump Seymour? off of it and says, I'm going to market this thing. <laughs> yep. But, and that's in that version. But then he wasn't available to do the reshoots for the new ending. So they got James Belushi. Jim Belushi. <laughs> Jim the, Belushi. The poor, to, poor man's John Belushi. Yeah. To play the, the basically the same character. What's really funny is he kind of <laughs> breaks the fourth wall. Yeah, he does. Because <laughs> the, there's a reprise of Suddenly Seymour between Audrey 1 and Seymour. Oh, God, and then he that. just comes in and says, hey, hey, hey. <laughs> stop that singing. Yeah, stop that singing. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, I, and, of course, that's not in the play at all in any version. <laughs> but, again, Jim Belushi made it his own. And it, that's the version I knew for the longest time, the only version I knew. And it was, it was like, hey there, ho there, what you doing, what you doing? It's just stop, I got a deal for you. And it's like, okay, the patter, I like it. He's very much sounds like a, a salesman. And, you know, it, it sold me. And then, of course, seeing the director's cut, it's like, okay, I see how different that is. A little darker, a little more menacing. You know, because Paul Dooley had a, a completely different take. Yeah, he tells him to stop singing for a moment. Yeah, I was trying to yeah, make sure I got the I got the exact line. So it, it's just so <laughs> funny that the, like they're all of these people, like everybody. Oh, Bill Murray, everybody wanted to be in this movie. It's so nuts. Guest. You got, yeah, you got him, right? Just, okay, here's here's a cameo that doesn't get brought up because most people didn't know her. Beatrice Redding is the old, somewhat transient woman who does the the opening of Skid Row alarm goes off at seven. She's the one who starts off that sequence. And she was born in 1933. She died in 1991 at the age of 57. She was American born, but she was based mostly in London for the almost the entirety of her career. She was adept at a wide range of musical styles from gospel to blues to musical comedy. She had a wicked sense of humor and she was mentally quick. She earned a Tony nomination for William Faulkner's play, Requiem for a Nun. 
I could find nothing more really about her because she died so young, but it's tragic. She was, she was happened to, she was there in, uh, in London when they were casting for the extras. And originally it was going to be Ronette to do that opening sequence vocals. And then they heard her, they heard Beatrice sing and they went, Oh, hell no, she's doing it. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it adds so much to see this downtrodden woman who is probably a maid or a housekeeper up in, up downtown to just be schlumping and singing this song about how terrible it is that she gets to see the glitz and glamour eight hours, 10 hours a day, and then have to come back down here to Skid Row. Mm-hmm. And again, it's, a, it's a, a moment of pathos right at the beginning of the movie, right at the beginning where you just, you're heartbroken for this poor woman mm-hmm. at the same time. And then of course it immediately splits and, and you have everybody in Skid Row singing about how crappy it is yes. to live here. And they are wandering around like zombies. Yes. I noticed that. And it's very eerie. And then the, when Seymour takes over and does his, his verses, he goes down a blind alleyway and there's a chain link fence up there. And the homeless residents of Skid Row are singing back up to his, his lyrics and they are crawling slowly up the fence, terrifying him. And he leaves the, the, the alley, but it's very, again, horror movie. These are zombies. These are infected, whatever they, Mm -hmm. and they are coming for him and he doesn't want the, and the song is about wanting to get out and he has to leave. Oh, love this movie. Yeah. (laughs) I could tell. I could tell. Yeah. So there are two more main things I want us to discuss. So I can make, because they, they're they the important bits. So I've already yes, talked yes. about it. I want to talk about Faustian bargains. This, ah, I, Although I had to hold myself back just a little bit, <laughs> just a little bit, because with episodes like this, it's not one of the tentpole episodes. This could have easily become a toku topic. No kidding. But I wow. reeled myself in a little bit. <laughs> but So you might also be familiar with the Faustian bargain or the Faustian deal. It was also called a deal with the devil. Indeed. And this is actually, as I said, this is a very old literary motif. In fact, one of the sources I looked at said it goes as far back as the 6th century. Yeah, absolutely. With the figure named Theophilus. This is mm-hmm. part of Christian lore. Of course. Yeah, is uh, the friend of God or beloved of God. He was a unhappy and despairing cleric. He was disappointed with his life as a bishop. So he sold his soul to the devil and then gets redeemed by the Virgin Mary. See that redemption part? Nah. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's an ironic end in there. Yeah, yeah. Well, which uh, there's parallels to that. The, uh, well, that's what happens during the Middle Ages when they start doing the passion plays. Yes. Anybody who makes a deal with the devil gets thrown into the hell mouth, which is what everybody came to see anyway. <laughs> because I'm sorry, you want to see the, the bad guy, the guy who throws away mm-hmm. his, you know, his eternal soul. You want to see him get his comeuppance and... <laughs> Oops. Yeah. Yeah. Well, like I said, you know, we'll get into that. Now, the term, you know, Faustian bargain, there's actually a historical figure related to that. So that story was inspired by a guy by the name of Johann, I hope I say this right, Johann George Faust, who lived from 1480 to 1540. He was an alchemist and apparently a necromancer. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> so there was the a chat book that chronicled his infamous exploits, as my source put it, in the late 16th century, which inspired Christopher Marlowe's play, The Tragical History of the Life and Death of Dr. Faustus. 
Yes. Which was performed in London in 1592. And then around the same time, there was a legend of, again, hope I say this right, Pan Twardowski, who was a sorcerer who sold his soul to the devil. And that was becoming popular in Polish folklore. (sighs) Gotta love that time period. Yeah. (laughs) It's so creative. (laughs) Now, the play, that original play was, what's the word? It was a didactic. You know, mm-hmm. as a lot of plays like this at the time were, it was written to warn Christians that God has set limits and humanity must respect those limits or face eternal damnation. However, in some versions of the Faust story, Faust outsmarts the devil, and in some of the other renditions of the story, the bargainer will try to use a technical point to outwit the devil, doesn't always work, and if the pact is written, it's sealed in blood. Which is another motif that you see come back in a lot of these stories. So, the most influential version of the story was written by Johann Wolfgang van Goeth. Mm -hmm. And everybody knows that one. Yep. Yep. (laughs) And it dominated his intellectual life. It was a dramatic poem. First appeared in 1808. Second part was in 1831, which was the year he died. Couldn't get away from it. Yeah, basically. You do one thing. You do one thing that people remember you for, and that's it. Yep, basically. And uh, uh, to quote one of my sources, the legend seems to have particular resonance in times of moral crisis. <laughs> End quote. So there's been a lot of 20th century spins on this concept. And I, interestingly, I and, and, I... <laughs> and unsurprisingly, a lot of them have to do with the temptations of fascism and wealth. <laughs> what? That's, again, completely new information. <laughs> Ooh. Yeah. But interestingly, despite the theological underpinnings of this story, the Faust legend has thrived in the secular world, particularly in cultures filled with instant gratification. So it still resonates now. You know, credit cards fast food, <laughs> you know, we get the immediate pleasure and then we have to pay for it later. Oh, download speeds. Yep. <laughs> Streaming. How often, how often do you have Netflix say, are you still watching? Say, yes, yeah, shut up. Let me, stream this. Let me binge. Exactly. <laughs> it's all, it's all there for us. And that's the problem. It's too mm-hmm. easy. Mm-hmm. Nobody has to work mm-hmm. for it anymore. Yep. The legend gained traction at a time when the closed medieval world was, you know, cleaved open, as my source put it, by new mercantile culture. Mm-hmm. Karl Marx identified the quote-unquote influx of gold from the new world as the dawn of capitalism, and he compared capitalism to a sorcerer who is no, quote, longer able to control the powers of the underworld he has called up, end quote. Interesting. Yep. And here's the thing that's that's interesting. We talked about Goth. That's probably the most famous version of this story. It's the one most people know. Yeah. yeah. Goth actually added something to that story that was not in the previous renditions of the Faust story. Margaret, oh. Margareta or Gretchen. That's right. right. Mm-hmm. So Faust, there is an added complication. Yes. Which I guess you can make the argument that Audrey is basically the same as Margaret or Gretchen, depending on which. Well, he, she is also the inciting incident. She wants, I mean, she is the, the desire of Seymour. So everything he does is for her. Yes. So Faust pursues her. He seduces her and then unintentionally destroys her and her family. 
as one of the consequences of his bargain with Sad. the the demon Mephistopheles. <laughs> I should have mentioned that. Right, he's not actually quote the devil. Yeah, yeah, but it's a very it's supposed to be a high ranking demon. Of course, yeah, it has yeah. to be. Who else has the power for that kind of oomph? Yeah, <laughs> in fact, if Mephistopheles, when Faust complains to him, he even taunts him by saying, "Who was it who ruined her? I or you?" Mm. Yes, mm-hmm. both of you. Yep, basically. And As like Dr. I said, Zoidberg would say, "Yeah." Why not both? Yeah, it's like the meme, right? You know, exactly. why not both? But now, like I said, we're coming to the end of our discussion. We need to talk about <sighs> the two endings of this movie. Fun, oh, wait, a fun little bit that I just, I have to throw this out there just because I know my friend Raymond of the legal action team will appreciate it. Uh-huh. <laughs> In the original ending, Mr. Dooley tries to say, plants are public domain. I have to ask Raymond about that. Ah, <laughs> uh, well, I would say no at this point. Just from what I know about, you know, I watch enough Law and Order. I kind of got a, sh- I kind of got a handle on this. I think because Seymour claims to have created this hybrid plant, and in the 1960s movie he did create it. Mm-hmm. It wasn't an alien. He then therefore has the rights to what it naming it and all subsequent cuttings of it. Hmm. So no, they are this plant. This particular plant is not in the public domain. However, an apple tree, yes, a, a wild apple tree that would be in the public domain. Oh, so it's Mis- it, Mr. it's Dooley like you. Wrong. It's like you stopped by the legal action team office and asked him this. Well, I had to check to see if I had broken any laws, local laws, you know, going over to the beta site. So this is true. I may yeah. have thumbed through a few legal briefs, sir. Yeah, well, better better you than my pseudo sister hanging out there. I'm just saying. Anyway, so the endings. Yes. So the funny thing is that the ending of the movie is the original ending is the ending of the play, but blown up to grandiose proportions. (laughs) Yes, because in the play, because we talked about that's why I wanted to make sure we talked about the Faustian bargains. Of course, because. This is why they were they were used as cautionary tales, mm-hmm. because you sell your soul, you have fun for a while, and then you pay the price. Yep. So in the original stage play, Audrey Two wins, and our Gloriously. main characters die. Audrey yep. Two eats them and takes over the world. Of course. Now the movie, like I said, blew that up to grandiose proportions because it wasn't just simply Audrey Two takes over the world. You get a whole sequence that is straight out of a Godzilla movie. In fact, they flat out said, we were mimicking Godzilla movies when we did this. It is full-fledged tokusatsu as far as I care because Conway had worked on miniatures for Brazil, I think he mentioned, and Mm -hmm. uh, for sure. I think it was another movie. He understood how to make miniatures that looked. Yeah, Yeah. and he did it like Subaraya. He was filming it at high speeds. They had like three foot miniature buildings. They had scale puppets of mm-hmm. kaiju Audrey's who were going around and eating trains Mul- and multiple uh, ones. Yeah, multiple. and you know, and strangling the Statue of Liberty, which Frank Oz said was symbolic of you know it's supposed to be Audrey is strangling America. And yes. then the craziest thing is Audrey literally breaks the fourth wall because yeah. she. 
burst through he whatever burst through <laughs> the screen like it's a like a movie screen and then the camera zooms in to his mouth so it's like audrey breaks through the screen and eats the audience and before that through, well, yeah. they had the end but not just a question mark. It was question mark, exclamation question point, mark. question mark. Question so it's mark. the blob thing again. <laughs> <laughs> Which was obviously put in there for that very reason. Yeah. So it's like the end. It's, it's freaking out. You know, I, I, and yeah, it's incredibly depressing because that's just the big grandiose stuff at the right. end. The actual ending when you're, you're seeing Mean Green Mother, the, the context is completely different. Audrey dies because... Mm-hmm. Audrey too tries to eat her. And if you listen to the commentary, because the commentary is primarily on the theatrical version and Frank Oz says, I will snap my finger when we switch to the new ending. Right. Where it cuts is when she passes out in the original ending. Are you Audrey? Are you okay? Yes. No. And then she collapses. Yes. And then there's a reprise of suddenly Seymour. Mm -hmm. No, not suddenly Seymour. It's uh, somewhere that's green. and it's right. completely recontextualized. So she, it's like she's talking about being somewhere that's green. And I'm like, so inside it, the plant. Like, like, yeah. Yeah. Inside the plant. <laughs> you could even take it as being like the afterlife because, you know, the Elysian fields, which is a very right. Greek idea, it could be heaven because it's paradise, you know, you know, I will, you know, lead me by still waters. I mean, uh, there's even a verse that kind of touches on the kind of the Faustian bargain idea. What does it gain a man if he, Uh, if he uh, gains the horn loses his soul so that speaks to that and you know so it's completely recontextual it breaks your heart good lord it breaks your heart it's terrible it's I mean it's brutal but at the same time it's exactly what yeah and then yeah and then Seymour takes her body and places it in the open maw of Audrey 2 and Frank Oz said he intentionally designed it so that it looked ritualistic like it was a, yeah. a sacrifice being offered well, not in a that, religious ceremony if you notice that when the doors to the dock open for him obviously the plant is opening for him, and as he's carrying her in she's in a wedding dress mm-hmm. and it's very much like he's going across the threshold mm-hmm. carrying her so this is both a wedding and a funeral mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and that con that context hit me that when i watched it and mm-hmm. oh yeah because he's oh. been they've been robbed of a yes. life together of uh, of you know and You'll notice it's not a violent undertaking. No. You know, like, like this consumption. The other characters was a little bit, vi- was in they some form or another was violent. This one was <laughs> weirdly gentle and it just, it hits you so hard. It's, you know, it's and very even, slow and methodical. And even Tui, even the puppet, even the way it's, it's does not immediately slam shut and do the swallow. It's a very slow and they, it brings her up so that she slides delicately and as if beneath water. Yeah. And it, it's it's strange how this monster, this kaiju, ha, who has been manipulating Seymour the whole time, understands that Seymour needs this soft closure. Mm-hmm. It's it literally like, and figuratively. Yeah. It's almost out of character for Tui. Mm-hmm. But by that same token, he's still manipulating. Yeah. Because I, I will tell you, sometimes I wonder, does some of the, you know, that lilting, I wondered how much how much of that's real and how much of it is him faking Mm -hmm. because sometimes I wonder, it's like, does he really need to have fresh meat to eat or is he just getting Seymour to get him what he wants? Cause that, if that's the case, he really is a monster. And that's what we, that's what we'll never know because we can't know the mind of an alien. But if it's, 
if he truly does need blood and fresh meat and all that to survive, there's a level of sympathy that could be allotted, but we don't know. It's it's vague, and I would say that if you saw this ending, if you saw the director's cut ending, and you saw the way he treated the death of Audrey, where he had been laughing minutes before having her half in his mouth and trying to swallow her, he he didn't have to let Seymour take her. This is a very strong plant. Did not have to let Seymour open the trap and pull Audrey out to go to have their scene in, on the dock. He chose to do that. He chose to give Seymour this these last moments with mm-hmm. the woman that he's always wanted, mm-hmm. the object of his deal with the devil. Yeah, yeah. And so I'm not sure if it's, an, it's another manipulation or if because he's been consuming mostly Seymour's blood this entire time, if there is some kind of symbiotic or parasitic connection between them that uh, maybe, a weird level of empathy perhaps yeah like is does he have he has been growing on seymour's dna this entire time is yeah. he a little bit of seymour yeah maybe but then but seymour he, runs out climbs a building is intent on jumping off then he meets paul dooley you know, uh, patrick our, martin yeah. licensing and marketing yes our plans public domain and then that's when seymour realizes what it's been about world domination, of course, this entire time. Mm-hmm. So then he goes back down to the shop, ignores Mr. Dooley, and basically says, you were just doing this to take over the world the whole time. And he's like, well, you finally figured it out. <laughs> and so then it becomes, I think, in this version, for Seymour, it's a little bit of, I have to stop you, and I need to avenge Audrey. I think there's a little bit of that, but the scene that follows, the tone feels like Audrey Two's toying with him the entire time. He's doing things to try to stop Audrey, but he's toying with him the whole time. Especially when when Seymour grabs the revolver and Tui does not move, lets him shoot him, and the bullets are bouncing off of his pod. Mm -hmm. And you can see the look in Seymour's faces. Oh God, I let it go too long. Yep. He should, I should never have allowed him to get this big. Yep. Because now he's invulnerable. Yep. Supposedly. Yeah, supposedly. And then it ends in a very long, drawn-out sequence with the end of the song. I I love how Audrey 2 grows his own backup singers. That's kind of funny. Absurd and fun, and it is part of the musical where he does that. And it's the faces of the people he has previously And it's that scene right there where I look at that and I say, Kazuki Omori saw this, didn't he? (laughs) Now I understand where Biolante came from. Biolante is Audrey 2. Let's be honest, Biolante's Audrey too. Probably didn't see the director's cut, but what's funny is he basically made the director's cut without knowing about the director's cut. And that's brilliant. Well, maybe he looked up the source material, looked up the play and realized that the plant won at the end. Yeah, I don't know. But, you know, it's just kind of funny how that works out because there are times like I watch Godzilla versus Biolante and I'm like, I need Mean Green Mother to play. Someone (laughs) make that fan edit for me. I want an incredible, I want someone who is, uh, Kaiju Kim, here's a project for you. You are a master of editing. I want you to take Biolante footage and with your magic, make Biolante sing Mean Green Mother from Outer Space. <laughs> that would be the best thing on YouTube. Anyway. Now, so the, the, so like the, I said, there's this long drawn out sequence where it, and it's long and it's drawn it out. And you just see long. Rick, Mar- you know, Seymour's just look of horror as he is slowly pulled into and the yet- maw. And yet, look at the way it's lit. It's lit as if it's beatific. Mm-hmm. 
the light is from above coming down, lighting Seymour, not Tui, but lighting Seymour as if he is going to his just reward, quote unquote. Yeah, which is how Ashman felt about it. Exactly. He's getting what he deserves. Mm-hmm. It, this is the end of the law. This is the consequence of your, of your Faustian bargain. He exactly. eats you. No, I mean, Tui does kind of joke. I was like, why don't you come in here to see your dentist and Mushnik? You know? Yeah. So now I guess the same thing could apply to Seymour as well. If that wasn't bad enough, then there's this that little extra gut punch where he spits out the shattered glasses. Now, this is different than the stage play. In it, at the end, he is, Seymour is doing his best to try and damage Tui and is unable to because he can't get through the thickness of the pod. And so he grabs an axe and says, I know you're weaker on the inside. I'll just cut my way through you. And Tui opens up. <laughs> so it's specific rim. <laughs> yeah, he I remember that inside. now, actually. <laughs> the pod closes and then he spits the axe out because obviously it's not meat. So he doesn't want it. So, yeah, it's a slightly different take. And I kind of like the, the movie version better just because even though it's long and drawn out, like it's an inevitability. You're going to die. Mm-hmm. It's inevitable. Mm-hmm. I am inevitable, as yeah. Anos would say. I am inevitable. Yeah. I am Seymour. <laughs> Damn, why didn't it work? Um, so, yeah. Yeah, and we find out after that that all of the leaf cuttings were another little plans. We get a Black Friday scene with crazy yep. consumers, and they're all buying the things. I'm like, it's the Funko Pops. And the Funko Pops are taking over the world, and you know, the Beanie Babies. More, well, I mean, this is all before like any the, of that. It's more, it's more like the rush for the Cabbage Patch kids. Yeah, at that time. Yeah. And so, then yeah. we get the big kaiju sequence where the payoff to the Faustian bargain is everybody suffers. <laughs> and it is long. It is a It goes on for a long time. And so, I mean, the, the music cool. is fun. There's a tribute to Patton with the three girls in front of the American right. flag. The music is good, but I can, there's a part of me that looks at this and I'm just like, you know, as cool as this is, Frank Oz, this does go on for a really long time. Yep. <laughs> so I don't want to call it indulgent, and I almost, and I hate to call it overlong because the special effects are so incredibly fun to watch. <sighs> but it takes ten minutes to hammer away one how plot bad point. it is. Yeah, <laughs> how, how and how ineffective the military is. How everybody's getting eaten. The dog survives though. The, uh, the dog keeps running away. So I, yeah. I found that. Yeah, but that was shown to test audiences. They did not like it. They turned against the movie when Audrey died. And like 180. Yeah. Like right there. Right like they that said moment. that like they were with it. They were cheering. They were invested in these characters. They were laughing. And then Audrey dies. And for like, like <laughs> Frank Oz just said, like the room just went frigid. It was a refrigerator. It was like nothing yep. for the last like 20 minutes. And like then that. when they got reports back, when they score it, you have to get at least a 55% to get a quote-unquote recommend. They got a 13. They made that many people angry. They did not like yeah. it. And so he had to make a decision, and it's just like, we have to do a, a happy ending, which Ashman yeah. and Minkin did not like. They're like, no, you can do it. And even Frank Oz said he didn't necessarily want to do it, but he said this taught him something. This taught him because, and I think this is just fascinating. We're going to get into a little bit of theory here, I think, mm-hmm. literary theory, but it's just so fascinating to think about this. He said, like, because the mediums are different, the audiences are a little bit different, and the expectations mm-hmm. are different. Now, he said, like, you can't do a happy ending for every movie. No. 
No, he's he's not saying like always do a happy ending. But he said the here was the problem they were running into. You mentioned the close-ups. Mm-hmm. By doing those close-ups, because when you're watching a play, you're not even if you're in the front row, you're not that close. No, you're at least characters. 15 feet away. Yeah. There's still a gap between you. But because this is a movie and he's doing close-ups, we're seeing the characters up close. We're seeing the nuances of their expressions and their emotions. And by doing that, the audience is getting really, really invested in these characters, probably even more so than... I mean, I don't want to disparage stage performances because they're amazing. I love them. But there's a level of intimacy there that creates a greater attachment. So the audience was very, very invested in these characters. And the other difference is, is that even if you have a, tra- you know, in the stage play, there's the tragic ending, but then the cast comes out and does a final bow. So the audience gets to see them again one I, more I, time. In a yeah, movie, I, I, you don't get that. When the characters are gone, they're gone. I, I just want to point out, you're talking to an actor. Yeah. <laughs> I know. <laughs> you're talking specifically a stage actor originally. Yeah. So I, I know firsthand exactly what Oz was talking about. Yeah. When you were on stage and you were getting that immediate emotional reaction from somebody, if I am in a drama and I have to say something tragic and horrible about my life or someone has died or whatever, if I listen carefully and try not to let it affect me or break character, you can hear people crying. You can hear people gasping. If I'm in a comedy and I say the right line at the, in the right way to elicit a response, the laughs will not stop. Now, granted, you have to kind of hold. It's called hold for laughs. And until they start dying down, the minute they start dying down, you continue with your lines. That immediate reaction, that immediate thing is, mm-hmm. is the juice for a stage actor. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's what and that's gets the, us up And that's the appeal of live it's, performance like that. Exactly, because every live performance is different as well. Mm-hmm. So someone who saw it Sunday night is, or Saturday night is not going to be the same person who sees the Sunday matinee. Mm-hmm. That being said, again, when you're doing a god-awful tragedy and everybody is dead, if you do, say, Titus Andronicus from Shakespeare, there are... Or, or any of his tragedies. <laughs> 40, four, well, specifically Titus Andronicus, because there are 47 acts of murder and mayhem that are committed on stage in front of the audience. Mm-hmm. And they are horrific. There are beheadings. There are people's tongues being ripped out, hands ripped off. Just It goes on and on and on. And if you are left with that, and you don't see those performers at the end, and if it is done right, it is not something to leave an audience with. Mm-hmm. And so to have the cast come out and say, hey, we're okay, this was just a play, it is a relief. It is The audience has gone through a catharsis, mm-hmm. and that is a very Greek thing. You are filling yourself up with the emotions of what you are seeing and allowing the negative emotions to be released into the ether and not to bother you anymore. It was almost, it's almost a religious experience. At least it was for the ancient Greeks. Mm -hmm. So contextually for modern audiences, they need to see that everybody is all right, that they are safe and that what they have just seen is not what really happened. And movie audiences don't get that cathartic release. They may have cried. They may have laughed. They may have been in shock but if the movie ends with, especially a musical comedy, ends on a down note. Mm-hmm. Even something not, as dark as this gets at points. Exactly. They're not getting that uh, switch flip at the mm-hmm. end that says, oh, no, no, Rick Moranis is still okay. Look, he's right there. Or, oh, there's Ellen Green. She didn't get eaten by a plant. Because mm-hmm. they come out on stage. And Oz, is, uh, he's, a, he's a consummate performer. He understands that. 
And even, I mean, because with the Muppets, they're not performing before a live audience except other people working for the Hensons. So they, they didn't have that same, because all the laughter was canned, obviously. Mm-hmm. They didn't get that. They didn't get that immediate response. But he understands it because they're doing it as a performance on a quote-unquote stage at the Muppet Theater, that that's what they would be expecting. Mm-hmm. And anytime they've taken the Muppets outside of their filming, they would get immediate responses. So obviously he would understand that. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I appreciated that. That I mean, I understood the choice. I prefer the darker ending because it is the original intent. Mm-hmm. But by that same token, I wasn't unhappy with the reshoots. Mm-hmm. And so. they had to spend a lot of money to do it. It cost a couple million dollars to do it. They oh, had to rebuild God, yeah. the sets, get all the actors back together. Well, and they didn't get all of them because they couldn't the get one of the forest girls. But in the new ending, after Audrey collapses, she gets back up, and then they meet Jim Belushi. Yep. The same plot point at that point happens, but Audrey doesn't die. Mm-hmm. And he realizes, oh, Audrey too is trying to take over the world. So <laughs> then he goes back, and even though a lot of the same footage is still there. They filmed some new stuff that in, and inserted it that does change the tone because then it comes in and and it's big dang hero time. He goes in there and right. he's like, I'm going to stop you. Uh, as opposed to him saying things in the original. It was like, you ain't the only person I ever loved, you know, and things like that. So now it's just like, it's big dang hero time. I'm going to take you out. And so there's more defiance there. You know, yes, uh, he, has found, he has found his, his nerve. Yes, because something that he loves has been yeah. threatened. Yes. He goes through, you know, to use another classic literary Greek thing. It's the hero's journey. He, you know, he has exactly. come full circle now. And just like we mentioned in some of the Faustian bargain stories, you know, mm-hmm. you know something you know, like there's one I didn't bring up. that's a literary example, but I remember reading this in high school, a short story called the devil and Daniel Webster. Yes. Where yep. it's a Faustian bargain, but thanks to Daniel Webster, who's a lawyer, He's able to get around it. Makes me glad I'm friends with a lawyer. Let's just say that. <laughs> of course. I mean, you, you kind of get into some dicey things here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sometimes I feel like I may have made a Faustian bargain or two. Uh, <laughs> oh, that was last season. You're fine. Uh, uh, yeah, hopefully. Hopefully. Although <laughs> overtures have been made. We'll say that. Anyway. <laughs> anyway, so he goes in there and... A lot of the same things happen, but then where that shifts is instead of grabbing Seymour and eating him, he collapses the store, and you think he dies under the debris, but he actually grabs a live wire, and then one of the only other uh, optical effects in the movie hits the live wire on Audrey 2. Audrey 2 swears as his final words, which is kind of funny. Yeah. And perfect sense. Yep. Yeah, you know, oh, Jet Jaguar. <laughs> and oh jet <laughs> oh jet and then he explodes and then the last scene is Audrey and Seymour get that happy middle class suburban life white, that they white always want the white picket yep. fence and everything now yep. Frank Oz still snuck a little bit of you know, foreboding he, in there. He had to. He had to. He, you, know, you had to because I mean, that is the play. So they go in there and then it, the camera pans down to the flower bed. There's one of the tiny Audrey twos looks up and smirks at the camera. So we still kind of get the fourth wall break there a little bit. Because yeah, whenever, because even if you just do something as simple, if you're an actor and you just and you look at the camera, that is considered breaking the fourth wall. You're addressing the audience. You're not supposed to look at the camera unless you're Deadpool. Yeah, unless you're Deadpool. But <laughs> you know, you're not supposed to look at the camera when you're acting. 
No, absolutely yeah. not. Uh, in a film, unless, anyway. unless it's specific that you are supposed to face the camera and yeah. not blink. Well, and, like, yeah, yeah, and, it's supposed to be, and it's like a POV shot from another character, or it's meant to right. be a fourth wall break. But right. So there's a lot of the same elements, but it's that happy ending, and that made the audiences for the movie happy. And Frank Oz said, I didn't want to do this, but I understand why I had to. Yes. And the worst part he said was calling Conway and telling him everything you've worked on has to be cut. Yeah. That had to be the worst part, which is so funny because when they found enough of the footage, because did you know that the original DVD for this movie got recalled? Yeah. Because of the content of it. Yep. Yep. (laughs) And And that's just, yeah. And then in 2012, they managed to find enough of a workable print because before it was just a black and white work print. Mm-hmm. And they found enough of it that they could actually restore it. And we talked about, you know, they used some digital effects to polish it up and get it ready, but they had to make new sound effects because they didn't make sound effects yep. for it. They had to add music because the music hadn't been made. They basically restored it, put it out on Blu-ray, edited it into the movie so you can watch either version. And so you can see and- the basically the original intent and you can see those special effects and as said frank i said it was so funny he actually got to do the opposite he called mr conway yep. at that point and said hey i'm putting it back in <laughs> <laughs> and conway was all okay great let's get it yeah let's do this and then funny enough that version did get screened at a theater at a film festival actually in 2012 and frank Oz prepared himself for a negative reception like the yeah. like the first time and actually, no. <laughs> Different world. Yeah, Different yeah. People. people actually cheered when you got to the yeah. big kaiju scene. And he just concludes like, movie audiences are a lot more cynical now. <laughs> yep. Absolutely we are. <laughs> I mean, I grew up in the Disney Pollyanna world and I never liked it. <laughs> I was the guy who liked the dark comedies. I The Little Shop of Horror. I'm not a big musical fan. I'm not a big Rodgers and Hammerstein's fan. I don't like the syrupy gooey everything's going to be all right kind of comedy musicals this is one of my favorite musicals both for stage and for movie and steven sondheim did one called sweeney todd the demon barber of fleet mm-hmm. street which got made into a movie with johnny depp that one's not that great go see the stage play with angela lansbury as mrs lovett those are the kinds of things that i enjoy as musicals and i would be terrible to see a movie with as a as a preview audience because i if unless it was dark and twisted. It's like, I was like, no, I don't like this at all. <laughs> Give me some meat. Give me something to chew on while I walk home and go, Oh God, I'm questioning everything in my life. <laughs> yeah. But like I said, it does fit with that Faustian bargain tradition. It just depends on mm-hmm. which version that you look at. I think both endings have their strengths and weaknesses. It really just depends on yeah. what do you want to get out of it? How are you feeling today? How, yeah. you know, that it, I feel now that digital media is available wherever we want it, wherever we need it, it is really a, do I want to be uplifted or do I want a depressing ending? Yeah. Yeah. And it, it just kind of boils down to that because I will admit, I watched both endings in preparation mm-hmm. for this and both worked for me for different yeah. reasons. Absolutely. Now, because there's a part of me that's just like, I am rooting for Seymour <laughs> and you Audrey, stick it to the plant. But there's also a part of me that's just like, it also makes sense for this to end as a tragedy and be that cautionary tale. And it's unique among kaiju or monster movies. If you take it out of when it was made in 1986 and put it into the 1960s, it is very rare for monsters to win. 
And if we take it just at its face value, this is an outlier. The monster of one? Are you kidding me? What the heck? Mm -hmm. In 1960? Oh, no, it never happens. Never happens. Because it, it, that belongs to a much more cynical time, mm -hmm. which is the 1980s. <laughs> mm -hmm. But it was too cynical for its time period even then, which is ironic considering that it was 16 years later, <laughs> it was considered perfect. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we love the na the nasty ending. Perfect. Yeah, let everybody mm -hmm. die. We don't care. Mm -hmm. Funny how that works. No, it's twenty six years. Two thousand twenty six years. Yeah, right. Sorry. Yeah, I know. Mea culpa again. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Theater major. <laughs> not. A, we talked about this the last time. Not a mathematician. <laughs> no. Don't do math. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's why I deliver mail. That's reading. It's not math. <laughs> yeah. You might want to talk to people about the delivery system around here. I'm just saying. I, I keep telling you we can't do drones on the island it's, yeah yeah it's a little too dicey yeah yeah a little dicey a little dicey yeah 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 yeah, yeah sure jimmy yeah your drones are better but they won't use them we get it but anyway <laughs> yeah at least they're good for cameras i know that much. this is true yeah this but, is true but yeah like i said i think both are legitimate i know there's probably going to be people who are going to be a one camp or the other but i am one of those people who says they both work i really do think they both work Yes, they do. And I genuinely love both versions of it. And again, as I said before, I listen to this soundtrack a lot and I prefer it to, because I saw this first, I prefer it to the Broadway or off Broadway or whatever it is. I, I do miss, yeah, I do miss the other songs, but some of like Mushtik and Sun tends to slow the progression of the play when you're watching it. And it's there to hide a scene change and costume change. Mm -hmm. I know that's because Audrey does change clothes an awful lot mm -hmm. in the stage play. So her and the Greek chorus, they a lot of scene, a lot of costume changes between those, those four girls. And some of the songs are put there specifically for that, mm -hmm. so, which happens a lot in musical theater. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yes, it does. It's one of the conventions. Yes. Yeah. It's the accepted trope. Yes. Because sometimes you get, you know, the tropes exist for practical reasons. Exactly. Yeah which makes translating it to movie eh, a little different, which is why I think they got rid of some of the songs. What to tighten it up a little bit more, just focus on certain specific beats that they wanted. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's for sure. Well, that was wonderful and went a little longer than I was expecting and yet didn't go as, and yet I did expect this, I should say. <laughs> There's so there's still stuff I can talk about. Oh, there's so. still stuff we could both talk about. You know, you get a pair of English majory people together talking about this, and just wow, <sighs> papers <sighs> are coming out of this. I mean, <laughs> and I, yeah, Jimmy is going paper. to be very busy with his blog. I'm just saying. I'm sure he is. I mean, I, I made some little, little snafus, so I'll be called out on that. I'm sure. Right, Jimmy? <laughs> you got caught all on one. I mean, that's a badge of honor around here. You know, you are. A, a real MIFV guest at this point. You have been oh, corrected good. by Jimmy. Oh, good. <laughs> I, I was wor I was worrying about that. <laughs> <laughs> I just I just wish I had gotten to on air. I know I'll probably give it to Jimmy as on the way out, but I have a list of all the principal plant operators, and there are uh, 20, 21 principals and f and twenty one additional performers who worked the plant during the live action scenes mm -hmm. that were filmed and they desperately need to shout out. So I can give this 
to Jimmy on my way out. Mm-hmm. But there is one person I want to, I do want to. I was going to say, if you have a few to mention, please mention them. I've got one person, and I think he stands head and shoulders above all the rest. We must not forget the most important person on the entire crew, above Frank Oz, above the players, above Mencken and Ashman, and above Conway, who did the special effects. This is the unsung hero, David Allen, who was the physical therapist for all the operators. <laughs> Due to the strenuous and backbreaking positions they had to contort themselves into just to bring Audrey 2 to life. David Allen, dear God, man, you were busy. <laughs> and I honor that. You're a hero. So Indeed. <laughs> Indeed. But Had now... Damon, we have come to one of the most exciting parts of the show, the Patreon shout-outs. Go show Travis Alexander! Danny Tomato! Eli Harris! Chris... Cook! Bex from Redeemed Otaku! Damon Noise! Yeah! <laughs> He's a mean green mother. <laughs> <laughs> the Cellcast! Eric Anderson! You're starting to sound a little bit like Mr. Gamora over at the Markalite Lounge. I'm just saying. <laughs> oh no, 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 no! I'm no. I don't have his golden tones. Oh, okay. Yeah, I'm just saying. Ted Williams, tofu fury. Ooh, uh, uh, do you feel pumped up? It feels so good. Okay, we're done. <laughs> I must get to the chopper. Get to the chopper. Um, <laughs> God, that was terrible. Oof, I really must not feel well. <laughs> Those beta site allergies, man. I'm just telling you. I, I may, maybe that main green mother actually gave me something. Oh, yeah. You, you might want to have a talk with him. Uh, or you could go ask Dr. Dora for some home remedies. You know. I'm going to say no on that one. I think I'll just uh, get some. Uh, uh, allergy analgesics from the corner market. Yeah, probably a good idea. Probably a good yeah. idea. But I need to let everybody know, yeah, it's going to be a little bit busier around here because we got a couple of bonus episodes coming up. <laughs> so first off, we have the actual fifth Wednesday bonus episode, which will be Beware the Blob, a.k.a. Oh, Son of Blob. Scared me there. <laughs> Yes, <laughs> but you know that's how it's written. Beware the blob. <laughs> yeah. uh, with Travis Alexander, my co-host in common. So he will finally get to see the goo. And I hope it's the uh, real it, goo this time. As long as he doesn't touch it. Yes, that's very important. Very important, but we keep the blob in an ice bucket. It's on display here from the good people of Pennsylvania for the next couple of months. You know, he's just chilling, man. Yep. Chilling. 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 And then, because I and my friend Elijah Thomas, my fellow podcaster over at Kaiju Conversation, share a birthday with the great Ray Harryhausen. We just had to. We are going to be starting a new annual tradition. We are calling Monster Conversation Harryhausen Annual. 
This will be the first of those. And because I asked Elijah, how do we want to do this? Because I've already covered a couple of Harryhausen films on the show. Mm -hmm. And he said, let's be weird and go backwards. Okay. So we're starting at the end with Clash of the Titans from 1981. Can't wait. <laughs> Chef's kiss of a movie. Just ah, it's, It is fantastic. It really, <sighs> really is. And then Amerikaiju continues next month. Ooh. We're making a big time jump. We're going from the 50s to 2007 with Cloverfield and my friend Nick Hayden. He'll be coming back to the island. Well, okay. (laughs) Not everybody likes Cloverfield, and that's okay. It's a fine, it just, it made me sick the first time I saw it. In the theater, and that happened so. to a lot of people. I understand yeah. that. I understand that. I mean, but watching it at home, it's a little bit easier to kind of look away and not be hurt by the shaky yeah. cam. Really, Jimmy, looking at Clover on the island made you sick. <laughs> <laughs> well, you have to remember that Clover isn't exactly full grown yet. Which is mildly so terrifying. Maybe it'll lose the gangly kind of gross gray skinny thing going on. Or it'll just turn into a muto. That would hurt. That would really hurt. Possibly. Possibly. But anyway, now we come to one of the most important segments of the show, shameless self-promotion. So I'll just quickly tell everybody, go listen to my spinoff podcast, Henshin Men and The Power Trip. That's all I'm going to say, because I want Mr. Noise here to take center stage. Well... I don't have anything new since I've been on the island for two weeks. Um, (laughs) So I'm just going to reiterate what I did the last time I was here, which is that I was in a movie in 2020 and it premiered this year. And now you can see it streaming on demand on Vimeo. It is called Maxi. It is a stark, unflinching look at two young adults going through drug addiction. I have a small part at the very end as the title character's father. Mm. Uh, You can also get a... Promo code, which is capital L Lane, L-A-N-E, count capital C County. It is all one word. And that will get you $1 off your viewing if you are so inclined. The uh, other project I had was a short 12 to 13 minute film, independent film called Off the Road, which is about three friends go have a little drinking party up in the mountains and meet a stranger who is not everything that he seems. And I'm that stranger. Hi, how you doing? And that you can find on YouTube under Off the Road Hewlett Artistry. Mm -hmm. So there you go. Alrighty, I'll be sure to post to all of those things in the show notes because I'm telling you right now, people, I know not everybody actually pays attention to show notes and podcasts. This is one where you should. I insist. Unfortunately, Apple's a little bit goofy. It doesn't always post all of them, which makes me mad. But you should, because not only do you get links like this, you also get to see my bibliography with all of my sources, so you too can dive deeper into these movies. And boy, are there a lot of sources. Oi. Yes. (laughs) Quite a few. Quite a few. But... I want to thank you once again, Damon, for stopping by and taking over the show for a month. <laughs> oh, no, please. The the pleasure was all mine. But I want to thank you because from just being a listener to being uh, asked to fill in a blank spot you had way back during the Gamma versus Gauss. Gauss, Gauss, Gauss. And then the honor of 
being called back constantly is it's, it's it's a thrill. I love it. It's as an actor, it's it fulfills a need that I have, and just as a human being and kaiju lover, it, mm-hmm. and being able to talk about these things that are near and dear to our hearts mm-hmm. is just a treasure. I love it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, I don't want to say too much about this, but apparently you've also felt a little bit inspired about starting your own podcast. And I, I look have, forward to seeing that. An inkling. Yeah. I am. It's, it's a slow process because I'm not a procrastinator. I just like have, I like to have all my ducks in a row before I yes. make anything. Yeah. I so. understand. I understand. <laughs> but that will be something to discuss the next time you come on the show. And yes, he is slated to come back. Won't say when, but he's coming back. <laughs> Probably multiple times as far as that goes. Yes. Yes, quite. <laughs> anyway, Jimmy, cue the credits. Thank you for listening to the Monster Island Film Vault, a podcast produced and hosted by Nate Marchand. If you want to join the discussion and be heard on the show, we'd love to hear from you. So email us at feedback at monsterislandfilmvault.com. Our website is monsterislandfilmvault.com. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Monster Island Film Vault. And on Twitter, where our handle is at TheMonsterIsla1. You can subscribe to us on YouTube, Spotify, and TikTok. Follow Jimmy from NASA on Twitter at NASA Jimmy and our many other colorful characters using the links in the show notes. The podcast logo was created by Tyler Souls from TylerDrawsComics.com. Our theme song is Wanderer on the Offensive, live edit by B33J, Serax, Juan Madrono, and Nonsensical Lexus, which is a remix of Counterattack, Battle with the Colossus, and The Opened Way, Battle with the Colossus, by Koatani from the video game Shadow of the Colossus. All film and audio clips belong to their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended or implied. Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and or Podchaser to spread the word about the show. You can also support us by joining MIFV Max on Patreon. The Monster Island Film Vault is a Moonlighting Ninjas media production. Sayonara! <laughs>